Exploring the history of cannabis culture. One artifact and interview at a time. This is Canthropology. Presented by the World of Cannabis Museum Project. With your host, World of Cannabis Executive Director, Bobby Black. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Canthropology, the podcast that explores the history of cannabis culture, one artifact and interview at a time. As always, I am your host, Bobby Black. You know, it's impossible to talk about the history of cannabis in America, or the counterculture in general, for that matter, without talking about the brotherhood of eternal love. Within less than a decade, from 1966 to about 1973, the Brotherhood went from a handful of stoner surfer buddies in Laguna Beach who liked to trip on acid to the biggest hash smugglers, LSD producers, and distributors on Earth, earning them the notorious nickname, the Hippie Mafia. Led by the messianic psychonaut Johnny Griggs and his inner circle, the Brotherhood's mission was to turn on the world to LSD. And to finance that dream, they smuggled tons upon tons of hashish into the U.S. from Afghanistan and other exotic locations, before finally being brought down by the feds in 1972. Along the way, the Brotherhood adopted Timothy Leary into their fold, helped break him out of prison, reintroduced marijuana to Hawaii, partied with Jimi Hendrix, and so much more. Their incredible misadventures are chronicled in a 2010 book and 2016 documentary film, both entitled Orange Sunshine, after the type of acid that made them famous. My guest today is one of the stars of that film. He's one of the original founding members of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love and arguably the most notorious hash smuggler in American history. I'm immensely honored to welcome to the show Mr. Travis Ashbrook. Travis, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for talking with me. It's been a pleasure to know you and be affiliated with this. Oh, well, that makes me feel good. I, you know, because I've been looking forward to this interview with you for a long time, uh, and I have a feeling we're going to be running a little long on this episode because there's just so much I want to ask you about. Uh, you have led a truly incredible life, my friend. It's been it's been interesting, I can tell you that. <laughs> All right, well, I let's get right into it. Uh, I want to start off with a little uh, personal information about you. Like, what's your background? Where are you from originally? Okay, I was I was born in L.A., California, believe it or not, and oh, that's uh, cool. raised in raised in uh, up in the San, uh, San Gabriel Valley, Arcadia, near the Santa Anita racetrack, and then in my teens moved down to Orange County, and lived in a place called Rossmore. It's right by Seal Beach. Right on. When yeah. when was your when was your first experience with marijuana? I know you started uh smuggling uh weed at a really young age. So what was your first time you smoked it? Do you remember your first experience with it? Yeah, I just I was right out of high school, so it had to have been like nineteen sixty three. And uh I was a surfer hanging around the beach a lot and there was this guy down at Seal Beach and his name was they called him the Buddha. Cause he was a big, heavy guy, real, real big dude. And he had, he, he gave me a couple joints. And so me and another guy one night smoked them and 
it was pretty interesting experience. My first time, I didn't think any, I didn't think I was high. You know, I didn't feel anything. And then we decided to drive to the store and get something to eat. So it was taking effect. We were getting the munchies. And then I can remember then it just distorted my time. The store was maybe five minutes away and it seemed like it took an hour to get there. And, uh, you know, the whole, the whole time distortion thing, but that was my first experience with pot. And then, uh, I started going down to Mexico on surf trips and would score it a little bit here and there and got into it. And then, uh, God, by, by 65, or maybe it was even still late in 64, I was, started going down to Tijuana on Friday nights and uh, I found a cab driver that had a connection and started buying kilos and we'd go down and buy two or three kilos I think the first time I did two kilos and uh, back in those days the border crossings were a joke and there was a little town called Tecate that's oh I don't know about probably 30 30 miles east of Tijuana and you could drive over to Cate, and the border crossing there was just a chain across the road that they locked up at six at night and mm-hmm. left. <laughs> and there was nobody around. It was just this chain across the road. And that was the entrance into the U.S. Mexico. So we'd just go over there and hike up hike up the side of that road. And there was a, a culvert of maybe a quarter mile up the road. And you would just throw the, throw the kilos, throw the bag in there, walk back down, get in our car, drive back to Tijuana, drive out of the country, drive around the back way, go and pick those up. It was that easy. <laughs> it, it was that easy. And I, I did this every weekend. <laughs> you, you, know. you, you, you did get busted, I think, at one point at that age, right? You spent a few months in jail or something? Well, I was, I got busted for possession, yeah, when, yeah. back in those days. But um, not for smuggling? No, no, no. I got busted for possession. I had a, a, a girlfriend I broke up with was mad he was pissed off and turned me in yeah. they came got me i had i think i had an ounce got possession but then you know i was in jail i don't know 11 12 days and got probation yeah and i was i was going to college at the time so you know it was it was a big deal but it wasn't a big deal you know it could have been a big deal because it was right at the cusp this was in i guess it was in 65 it was right on the cusp of uh of pot being, you know, more accepted. I mean, it was still really bad, though. But I mean, as far as the laws were concerned, you know, possession in those days could give you give you five to it carried five to life. In fact, it's crazy. In the state of California, yeah, there was the indeterminate sentences they had back in those days. It carried five to life, so they could give you whatever. They and that wanted. was even before Nixon passed the Controlled Substances Act, right? I mean, that was the yeah, yeah I mean, that, that was, was back yeah. before that, so this it was, was crazy. This was before Nixon. This yeah. was in 60. Yeah. This was in 65, I think 64 I, or 65. I didn't realize the laws were so harsh before. Oh, before they were that. terrible back yeah. then. That's yeah, they were they were really bad then. It yeah. was uh it was state prison, man, right out for pot. You wow. get caught with a joint, man. They, I know guys that did did time in San Quentin for for like a couple joints. Wow. Well, I, you said uh, obviously you were really into surfing, uh, and I know that uh, you used to hang out at a club called the Golden Bear where Dick Dale used to perform. Did you did you get to see him perform? Did you know him at all? Oh yeah, yeah. But that even before the Golden Bear days, back when we were like fifteen and sixteen, Dick Dale performed down at the Rendezvous Ballroom. That's where he got famous, and that was the big surfers' place. And the, the dance we did was called the Surfer Stomp, <laughs> and. 
and he pref- used to play there until the, the rendezvous burnt down. But that was the place, man. That was back in 62 and 63. And you, you even had like a storefront on the beach where you were like build and repair surfboards, right? Yeah, I made surfboards. I had a surfboard shop in uh, 62. I was still in high school. Wow. And I, I was making boards in my mom's garage. And then uh, I got an opportunity to rent this shop down in, on Coast Highway, the beach. And uh, so I, I moved out and moved my equipment down there and started making surfboards. I was still going to school. So I'd go to high, I'd drive home from school every day and then drive down there and shape and glass. I used to do it all. That was back in the days when you could glass in the back, but, you know, sell them in the front and build them in the back. Yeah. You know, and uh, yeah, I did that. Did that for years. In fact, that was my main, after my shop got robbed, I think after I got out of high school, that next summer, my shop got robbed and I didn't have any insurance. And I was just a kid, didn't know any better. Yeah. So I I shut it down and started working for other board companies. And over the years, I owned a couple more companies, board companies over the years. I'd go to work for one and end up owning it. Hmm. (laughs) And then, and then got out of the board business when I got into smuggling. So, uh, yeah, so let's get into the good stuff. Uh, <laughs> when you were, uh, when did you first meet uh, Johnny Griggs and get involved with the Brotherhood? Uh, now, just for those who are listening who don't know, uh, Johnny Griggs was the kind of the central figure and almost a messianic kind of figure in, in a way uh, in the Brotherhood. Uh, so, can you tell us about your how you met him and got involved? Well, through the the pot dealing around, you know, around the Orange County area, John was a pot dealer. And uh, he was pretty notorious. He went to Anaheim High School, and I went to Western High in Anaheim. So we were like cross-town rivals. And he was a pretty notari- notar- notorious guy. He uh, he was in a group called the Street Sweepers. This was before there were gangs and stuff, but they had car clubs. And, you know, they were like lowriders. And they had a car club called the Street Sweepers. And uh, they used to like to go out and fight. That was their whole thing was go drink beer and fight on weekends and uh, go crash parties. They used to crash parties and go in there. And, they, and John was a little guy. He wasn't real big, but he was tough. And uh, these guys would send John in to, to start trouble because he was small. And then they'd all come in there and clean house. But that's <laughs> why they called them the street sweepers, I guess. They were... <laughs> But so John and his crew guys, they were all pretty notorious. They were not, not the nicest of guys. And then I guess they got into robbing and guns and heroin and all kinds of stuff there, which I, I was at the beach surfing, so I wasn't around that stuff when that was happening. Then I kind of hooked up with John. He used to hang out at a guy we called the witch doctor who lived in Seal Beach. I'm not going to repeat his name because I don't know if he would care about that. That's but, all good. Uh, he was the first acid connection. He was the one that was getting the stuff from England. And he also sold weed. And I can remember the first time going down, I, I, I gave him some money for a kilo of pot. There was a load of weed coming in. And I gave him some money to get a kilo. And when I went down to pick it up, he handed me this bag of capsules of white caps. And I go, what's this? And he goes, it's LSD. We didn't get the pot, but we got this LSD. And I didn't I know. Yeah, I've heard of it, but I don't know anything about it. He says, well, when you take, don't, don't sell any of it until you've taken it yourself. And John was there and John was getting acid from him as well. And then John started telling me about God. And I said, well, he says, don't you believe in God? And I go, not really. I don't kind of believe in anything really. I mean, you know, and he says, oh man, well, you're going to, 
you take that take that mm-hmm. LSD and you're gonna see. <laughs> and I and I did, and I saw God. I'll tell you, I had some deep experiences, and uh, you know, I, yeah, I understood what he was talking about at that point. But he was kind of that way. He was he was a real spark plug. He was turning everybody on, and he would take you out on on week. We used to go out on weekend sessions. We got into taking it every Sunday, and uh, he'd take a a group of people, small groups would go out. And if once you'd learned how to get through all this stuff and get beyond your ego, you know, you could show other people this. So John would do this and teach people. And then he would tell you, take your friends out, turn them on. And it just kind of spread that way. You know, everybody got turned on, would go out and turn on anybody that was willing to listen. And, you know, I was taking people out every weekend, you know, five, six, seven people. And then we'd have these big, massive group sessions, maybe once a month, where there'd be maybe 50 to 100 of us out. out. And we'd go up into the woods to a, to a creek somewhere or down to a beach, wherever it was quiet, peaceful, and isolated. That was the whole key. And uh, we would dose, and then somebody would read, probably read from one of the guidebooks, and we would lay there and meditate, sit, sit or lay and meditate. And generally it was an all day thing. And you'd start coming back into your body, into your consciousness, maybe after six, seven hours. And you'd be renewed. It would be a complete, you'd be a complete different person. Yeah. And it was, it was a really heavy time. I'll tell you. Things, wow. Things <laughs> wow. And, and this really goes to the heart of what the brotherhood was about. Uh, you said in the movie, um, uh, orange sunshine, which is a documentary about the brotherhood. Uh, you said that we felt it was our duty to turn on the world. It was our mission. So can you elaborate for us a little about, uh, the, the philosophy and mission of the brotherhood and, and how you guys kind of formed into this group? Well, it was kind of spontaneous. It just kind of happened. Uh, people, you know, some of the guys were from Long, some of the folks were from Long Beach, and mostly most of them from Orange County. And uh, we would just start meeting people at and that were high and turning on your friends and everything. But once you got into that state of consciousness, you're basic. You basically wanted to share it. You wanted to, you wanted everybody in the world to see what you were seeing. You know, and it, and that was the vision. It was like you know, complete clear, clear light, and truth, and love for all, oneness of all. You know, and then the experience was like, you know, you were. We used to call it experiencing God, and what it was, God isn't something separate from you or some other, some other being. It was showing you that everything is one thing, all one consciousness, and that's what God is, and you're part of it. So you're God too. You know, and that, that was the kind, and that, that's the word we tried to spread to just show everybody, you know, peace and love, you know, basic philosophy of the hippies. And that was because of LSD. It was, it was making people see that. I mean, LSD ended that war and brought the consciousness up to end the Vietnam War. It took a while, but it, I, I really think it was the psychedelics that fomented that awareness to, to realize that that was a bad thing. Yeah. You know, I think the whole, the whole country or the whole world needs a big dose of psychedelics right now. Yeah, from your, from your mouth to God's ears, man, for sure. Uh, you know, because I, I mean, what I'm experiencing seeing right now is almost like it's a repeat of the 60s, but even more. But worse, more, yeah, yeah. More, I, more, in, more intense, you know. Yeah, I've, I've been feeling the same way. Like uh, Trump is like Nixon, but worse. And what we really need is... You know, we need another spiritual awakening and revolution like we had. We have a social, 
revolution happening with with Black Lives Matter and things like that. The social aspect seems to be there. There was people out in the streets, but that spiritual psychedelic aspect is maybe what's missing. It's still not there because there's a lot of youngsters taking psychedelics now. There's a big resurgence in psychedelics from what I see. And, uh, you know, I've got a lot of grandsons and stuff. So I, <laughs> I, I got to kind of, a, I keep a tab on what's going on out there. And there's a lot of psychedelics and there's a lot of beautiful young folks out there. Man. Yeah. I mean, you can see it in these protests and, you know, the young people are really, yeah. really into it. Man. For sure. If but anybody's like, going to say- like you said, they're, they're missing that spiritual part of it. They're missing that. Uh, I mean, some of them have it, but yeah. a lot of people don't realize what it's about. You know, they take acid and they go, Oh man, I was, yeah. I was frying and that was great. You know, going out and partying and that. And I said, "Well, if you took a big enough dose, you wouldn't be going out and partying. You'd be like, you'd be sitting down in front of a fireplace, listening <laughs> to music, listening to music and praying." Yeah, because <laughs> you know, we need a lot of prayer right now. I'll yeah. tell you, man. Well, hope, hopefully they can save us from ourselves. Let's let's hope so. But well, uh, yeah, I think November is gonna. Yeah, everybody's got sitting with bated breath to see what happens in November, yeah. and you know, it could be the end of our country or fixing it one yeah. way or the other you know, I, you know, absolutely it's... well uh, let's i want to take it back to uh to uh, back on topic for a moment um okay. so um the brotherhood uh came together down in orange county area uh laguna beach area um and so who were the other main members uh obviously uh johnny griggs was kind of the main guy and then there was also michael and carol randall uh, tell us who else was involved in the initial okay well carol carol randall was john griggs's wife at that yeah. time so she was john it was carol yeah. carol griggs and oh god there was a bunch of guys but there was, let's see there was russ harrigan and uh russ uh, russ harrigan jack harrington glenn lind ronnie ronnie bevins who's got a book out now um ricky bevins came along later his brother uh, mark stanton eddie padilla I'm just trying to think yeah. of the, the core, main core guys. That, yeah. Because we, we we all lived up in Majesca Canyon before we went to Laguna. Yeah, you guys had a, had an old church that was like your base of operations, right? Had an old, a big old stone building, the old Majesca house. And we leased it out and turned it into our church. And John and Carol and your kids and I think Calvin and Johnny Daw lived there as well. And we'd have meetings up there on Wednesday nights. And then we'd have our Sunday sessions, and sometimes they'd be there. Sometimes, most of the time, we'd go off, off somewhere in, in nature. Yeah, and that was <laughs> and that was around the time when you guys created the nonprofit uh, corporation of the Brotherhood, right? You incorporate right. as a nonprofit uh, as kind of like a church. Ram, da- Ram Das came up to see us, and that, he was still Doctor Richard Alpert <clears throat> at the time, and uh, before he became Ram Das. He came over there to see us one time, and he's the one that suggested that we do something. First of all, get get yourself nonprofit, and so we did that. We filed as a church, and we were a legal nonprofit church in the state of California. Then he told us, "You guys got to do something to for income to show, you know, show because we were kids, we didn't know nothing, right?" So we we got the idea about opening up maybe a bookstore or something down in Laguna Beach. And one thing led to another, and it just kind of snowballed, and we rented this building. It was huge, and it had seven – we ended up having seven shops within this, and we called it Mystic Arts World. And it was really the first big head – first head shop, but it was a, it was more of an empor- a psychedelic emporium. There was a bookstore. There was a, a head shop that had pipes and rolling papers and all that kind of stuff. Uh, there was a handmade hippie clothing store. 
a juice bar, health food bar, an art gallery, uh, and then a big meditation room in the back. There was quite a quite a deal we put together, and we all moved down from Majeska Canyon to Laguna, and put our heart and soul into that. And that was that was in '67. Yeah, and that was. And, I mean, I've heard that became such a big center for hippie culture that it was actually referred to as Haight Ashbury South. Yes, it was. It it and and Mystic Arts just you know kind of became the center of the whole town, and and it became so popular and it became so profitable. I mean, it it happened so quick and it was so profitable that the next spring we bought a big ranch up in Idle near Idlewild, California, up in the mountains, and most of us moved. Most of us that were couples moved up there. And that and, was, that was Forbes Ranch, right? It was called Forbes yeah, Ranch, and, Fo- and that Forbes was in '68, right? Spring of '68. Yes, that's when we moved up there. And the store, some of the brothers stayed in Laguna and ran the store. And then a bunch of us, couples only. John only wanted couples up there and their family and mm-hmm. kids. And so there was, I think, I forget how many of us were up there. It was probably about 25 of us moved up there. Tim Leary came out from yeah. uh, Millbrook, Millbrook and was living with us in Laguna for a while. And then then we got, we got the ranch and, you know. People call it Tim Leary's ranch. <laughs> no, it was the brotherhood. Our, he, was our, he was our guest. Yeah. You know? So what was what was Dodge City? Is that is that in Laguna or was that at the ranch? Because I, I, I oh that's that's in Laguna. There's a there's tell a us about there Dodge City. Wood, yeah, it's a street called Woodland Drive. And it's back up. You go up Laguna Canyon Road, maybe a half a mile up from the from Coast Highway. And there's this area up there where they have a thing called the Sawdust Festival now, and the Laguna Art Gallery, Art Fest, Festival of Arts, all that stuff's up there. Well, there's one little neighborhood there in called Wood, on Woodland Drive and Canyon Acres Drive, and this whole neighborhood in between, and that became Dodge City. Almost all the hippies moved into there, took that whole neighborhood over, and uh, that was Dodge City. It just became John. John's mm-hmm. one. John's the one that named it that because it was it was notorious. I mean, it was there were drug deals going down, pot deals, acid deals going down at hmm. any given time of the day and night. There, I mean, it was it was really a, it was funny. You guys had a lot of uh, of other uh, counterculture icons kind of rolling through to visit you guys too. I read that uh, Ken Kesey came down with the Further Bus and the Moody Blues came to hang out with you guys. Yeah, Moody Blues came to the ranch, up to the ranch, and spent spent a day and a, a night with us there, and we even hiked up to the cave on the side of the hill. We we tried to get them to take psychedelics, but they they didn't want to not there. But, but they smoked it with us and hung yeah. out all day. And they they came out with an album right after that that showed them sitting around a fire in a cave, and I think it was called "To My Children's Children's Children." And it was kind of their inspiration from the ranch, and that and that was when they wrote that song about Timothy Leary, right? It was a no, legend of a no, mind. Actually, actually, that that was before we ever met him. That's what got oh, us really? to meet him. That, oh, yeah, that, that, okay. Right when we moved up to the ranch, that album came out, that huh. first Moody Blues album, and had the legend of the mind song on it. And so Timothy was intrigued because he didn't know who these guys were, and so they came to play in L.A. at the Shrine. Mike Randall and myself, in fact, were the emissaries. Timothy wrote a letter to them inviting them to come up. And Mike Randall and myself and my wife, and I know he had he had a date with him, and the four of us went to the shrine. And then we went backstage. They let it, they we told them we were there, some emissaries from Timothy Leary, and they brought us down to their backstage, took us to the dressing rooms after the show. And we spent about half an hour in there, you know, BSing with them. And, 
and invited them and they came up that weekend the next weekend and the, you know the rolling stones came up there too but they drove back and forth on the road and couldn't find that the gate was locked and nobody <laughs> had told nobody had told us that they were coming oh man and uh there was a guy named michael hollingshead i don't know if you've ever heard of him he they called there was a book out called the man who turned on the world yeah it sounds familiar, I'm familiar with the his guy name. He, was a, he was an english guy and he was a friend of tim he was a cool guy i really like michael he uh, you know, he, he he came out with the crew, the Millbrook crew, Timothy's crew, when they came out to the coast, to the West Coast. And I, me and Michael used to hang out a lot together. He was a cool guy. He's the guy, he turned on the Beatles, the Stones. Uh, I mean, he's the, he was one of the first people in London around that scene to turn everybody on in psychedelics. Very cool. Um, also, around that time, I read that, that you guys, there was like a big... Um rock concert sometime around christmas maybe maybe it was 70 i'm not sure but where there was like a like tens of thousands of hippies that came down to laguna beach and 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 someone from the brotherhood uh, flew overhead and dropped acid from the from a plane is that is that uh that's a true story there was a there was a concert they called it the laguna happening festival i think it was in the winter of 70 and most of us were gone from laguna by that point in time ah uh-huh. So kind of it was kind of what second stringers, you know, yeah. that, that put put it on. There were still a couple of people that were still running Mystic Arts. They hadn't hadn't shut Mystic Arts down yet, and uh, they rented this big pasture up in Laguna Canyon up there and put on a big rock fest, kind of a like Woodstock, but a little bit smaller. But there were thousands of people came. There were thousands of people showed up, and it became quite a. It was a big scene. Wow. You know, and nobody died. You know, I don't think anybody was arrested. Uh, it was a big peaceful thing and a lot of music. Yeah. But that that we went, we had a, they had that Newport Pop Festival in six, the summer of 67. Right. Or 68, I'm sorry, the summer of 68. Yeah. And we all, we all came down from the ranch to go to that because we were invited. Uh, we, we had the juice stand at the, at the festival. It was at the court. <laughs> Oh boy, and, I know what was going in that juice. Yeah, because we were, <laughs> you know, we we had Mystic Arts World, and so uh, we had the juice stand from our health food juice bar, and we were passing out juice, and boy, people were getting juiced. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you guys were producing um, like crazy amounts of acid by that point, right? Like, so oh, yeah. the mission was yeah, to yes. produce as much acid as possible and and get it out to as many people as possible. And for like next to nothing, practically, right? I mean, it, well, the well, object wasn't profit. It was to get people high. Yeah. John wanted it to be free, you know, so it got to be where we were, you know, doing other things to get the, to, mm. to generate the money, the cash. To, to buy this to make the LSD and then pass it out for free. Yeah, well that that's which, a perfect segue into my next uh, line of questioning, which is the things that you did to raise the money, uh, which brings us to your uh, career as a hash smuggler. Uh, in, in the movie, you say I was the hash guy. That was my thing, <laughs> and uh, I just wanted to say, uh, you know, uh, you said. Oh, you also said uh, I loved it, but it was so expensive you had to be a dealer to use it. Now I'm I'm as much as I enjoy modern day dabs, uh, and I and I do. Uh, there's there's still for me. I remember as a young person, especially when I started working at High Times back in the '90s, 
I used to look forward to going to Amsterdam every year to the Cannabis Cup because that was the only place I I had access to hash. And I remember just being like a kid in a candy store with all the delicious, savory, spicy, old school, traditional hashes that you could get there. Nepal, Moroccan, uh, just everything, Afghani. Um, And I often uh, think of it like, think of dabs as like a good scotch or a whiskey and and hash is more of like a fine wine you know yeah Uh, it's more for sipping and savoring um so tell us a little about how you got turned on to hash how you became the hash guy well uh, the first time i smoked hash was at the golden bear before the brotherhood before laguna the golden bear was at nightclub in huntington beach and i worked there for i don't know maybe six months. I hung out there a lot. I used to love the music. And there was a guitar player from New York that was the guitar player for uh, Ian and Sylvia. They were a Canadian couple, singers, pretty famous back in those days. And uh, his guy's name was Monty Dunn, and he's the one that turned me on to Hash. And after that, I mean, you just couldn't find it anywhere. Man. I was always looking for it, and we used to go up to San Francisco, and I, I can remember sitting for a week up there just to score an ounce of Hash. Huh. You know, it was, that, it, was that, it was that scarce. So I just finally got thinking, you know, man, we need to just go, let's go get some of this ourselves, you know? So I started doing a little research on it, and I saw that you could go to Europe, you could go to Morocco or Turkey, Istanbul, but they were both within striking range and driving range. You know, you could drive to those places from anywhere in Europe. And uh, so we got thinking, well, let's just go buy a car, drive there and fill the door panels up with hash like we did in Mexico with weed and ship the cars back. And and so we we said, let's do it. And so we I raised I raised five thousand dollars, which was a lot of money back in those days. This was in 67. Yeah, I I raised five thousand dollars and. Actually, I had a thousand. My part, the guy that went with me is Ricky Bevins, and he got a thousand. And then we got three other of the brothers to each give us a thousand. And so we took off, and we uh, we were kind of flying, taking it. We didn't really know what we were doing. <laughs> we were just kind of flying by the pants, you know. And we took a, I think it was eighty <laughs> bucks for a flight from L.A. to New York, and and then another eighty on a Icelandic Airway, Airways prop plane to Luxembourg. Hmm. from from new york and via via iceland it was icelandic airways this noisy old rattle trap wow. and then when we got to luxembourg we said well let's go to germany and buy a car so we took a train from luxembourg to to we went to munich yeah we went to munich and we couldn't believe how cheap cars were. I think we spent 500 bucks. The car was like a brand new. It was a small little compact car, but it was like brand new. It was a Ford Taunus. And so we, looking at all the maps and just doing the research as we're going, we decided, well, let's go to Istanbul. Let's go to Turkey. It seems like the easiest place to go. So we just drove, took off driving, and then uh, up through Austria, through the Alps, down into Yugoslavia heading across Yugoslavia to Greece. And when we were just about leaving Yugoslavia, we picked up a couple of hippie hitchhikers, a guy and a girl that were hitchhiking. And one thing led to another. And we started 
rapping with him and I we had a little bit of weed with us and we smoked it with him and the guy says well what are you guys doing where are you going and we told him well we're gonna go get some hash and they go well you don't want to get your hash in turkey man this stuff's not that good and it's expensive he says you want to go to afghanistan and i said well, what the hell is that man <laughs> <laughs> he says well you just got to keep going it's through turkey and then through iran and it's the next country after that and they said you can drive there so he says, look, let's go to Turkey. You go to get to Turkey. There's a hotel in Istanbul where all of the hippies congregate. And they didn't call them hippies then. They called them travelers. Hmm. He, he says, well, all the travelers will be there. And they all have hash from all over the place. They kind of just set up shop there mm -hmm. at this hotel in Istanbul. And he says, you know, crossing back from Istanbul into Greece is very dangerous with hash. You'll get caught. And you remember the Midnight Express movie? That was uh, yeah. Greece. So he told us, don't don't come back with it if you go there. But anyway, he said, you need to go to Kandahar, Afghanistan, if you want the good hash. And so anyway, we went to Turkey to this hotel, and we spent the night there. He went out and got little samples of hash from Lebanon and Nepal, Afghani, Turkey. He had them all. And we sat there and tried them all. And said, Let's, when do we leave for Afghanistan? It was so much, so much better than all the rest of the hashes, right? Yeah. And we'd never heard of it or seen it before. It was, it was pretty rare. So we took off the next day and they, they we took those people with. We told them, oh, you can guys, guys can go with us, ride with us. So we got drove all the way across Turkey and got to the Iran border. They wouldn't let his girlfriend into Iran because she didn't have a passport. She had a European uh, Back in those days, they had these cards you could travel around Europe without a passport with. But Iran wasn't part of the European Union. Yeah. <laughs> so they had to turn back. He could go, but she couldn't. So they turned back. But he told us where to go. He says, don't even bother to score any hash until you get to Kandahar. He says, get it there. So we drove on and through Iran. I think we spent a week in Tehran because our car needed work. And then I got really sick and Marshad in iran and my shot is like the last big city before you get to afghanistan i, I cut dysentery there anyway we finally got to afghanistan and we got to kandahar and we got we scored little bits of hash in herat and at the border from the border guards they sold us some hash and then we got to the town of herat i had to spend three or four days in bed there i was so sick and ricky went out and scored hash there a little bit here and there and then we finally got to Kandahar, where we were going to try and do, you know, get our most. We were talking about 10 kilos, right? And uh, so I said, Well, look, Ricky, we've been on the road for weeks and weeks. I haven't taken any acid in like a month. Let's go take some LSD first before we do any business with anybody. Let's get ourselves centered, get our consciousness centered here. So we rented a couple of horses and rode out of town out to this river. And uh, tied our horses to a tree and laid down along the side of the river in this grassy slope and took psychedelics and had unbelievable experiences. I mean, it was, it was unreal. We went back in time, you know, thousands of years. Wow. And cause Afghanistan's that way back then. I mean, once we got to that country, it was like being in the old Testament. It was just, you know, everybody was in robes and turbans and it was just full on, you know, something yeah. I hadn't experienced before. But it was it was really trippy. And uh, but anyway, we got that rode back in from town that night from that experience and got into town. And we were standing in line in a fruit stand in the, right in the center part of Kandahar. 
And I saw this guy coming towards us, walking towards us, this Afghani guy. And he walks up to us and looks right at me and he goes, do you guys want to buy some fine Afghan shit? <laughs> and this guy's name was Nazarula, Nazarula Toki. And I said, yeah, but what kind of shit you got? <laughs> so he's, he runs off this list. He goes, well, I have cocaine. I have opium. I have hashish. I have uh, pills here, there, there, everything. Because you, know, you could go to the drugstore there and buy anything you wanted. Huh. Back in those days, you could go buy anything that you know was made. They had it there, and he didn't need a prescription. I said, well, we're interested in the hashish. And so he says, well, come with me. And so we went with him across the square. He had a little... Uh, shirt shop a little shop a clothing shop right on the square a little store so we went in there and he said sit here and wait for my brother my brother come he's the hash man so he bring his brother shows up and that's hayatullah and he became our main connection he didn't speak english but nazarula did but hayatullah didn't so anyway long story short we ended up trading the car which was totally trashed at that time for 50 kilos of hash wow and uh we had, we still had all our money. We hadn't bought, you know, we, everything was so cheap. We still had a lot of money. So we ended up buying a bunch of antique musical instruments mm. and hiding the hash and stuffing it in all these instruments and taking them apart and putting it in them. They were just a bunch of weird, strange looking at old antique instruments and stuff and drums, tablas and tamburas. Anyway, we just filled this whole, all this hash. We ended up bringing, getting 88 pounds hidden. We had to leave a bunch of it behind. And then we bought a bunch of these furs, and they made big, they made these big crates for us. And we packed all this stuff in there in furs, and we shipped it uh, as unaccompanied baggage. And then we, 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 we took a flight. They had just opened up the Kandahar Airport, and we took a jet. One of the first flights out of there. And, Ariana Airlines to Frankfurt, Germany. And the the hash package went as unaccompanied baggage. It was a big crate. And then when we got to Frankfurt, it got transferred and put on, uh, I guess, I don't know, Lufthansa or whoever we flew. Then we flew to uh, to New York and we came in through New York. Oh, no, we flew to LA. We flew straight to LA. And then the package came in unaccompanied baggage the next day. So Ricky's brother, Ronnie, said he'll go get it. We told him we'd pay him. We told him, you go down and get it, because he was real square looking. He had short hair. He was, <laughs> like, uh, he was an architect or a bookkeeper or something. So he was a real lame looking guy at the time. So he went down there and picked up the package. And that's all in the movie. They talk about it in the movie and stuff. Yeah. But anyway, he uh, he picked it all up and we got it back and we got 88 pounds back. We thought we were going to be coming back with 22 pounds. We came back with 88. So everybody was pretty pretty excited i think we split it up each of us got 13 pounds and we gave 13 pounds to the store and then each of the investors got 13 pounds and then there was enough left to give everybody in the brotherhood a pound to smoke if they weren't you know investors in the load wow so and then that just started that snowballed from there and i went you, back i went back every six months yeah you know, I, for years and you got up to doing you were doing and eventually doing a lot more than that you were doing up to almost like a ton at a time at one point right well uh, the, later on the afghani loads were they were they got about 500 pounds we figured out the different vehicles and we were doing pretty much about 500 pounds every time you always did it in vehicles right you always yeah yeah, yeah at first yeah, yeah. 
so you established this connection with the Toki brothers. They became your main supplier. Did you always buy from them or were there other sources or did you go to other countries or was it mostly just this pipeline from, from Afghanistan? It was mostly at that time. It was always, it was Afghanistan. That was the main deal. And the Tokis, yes, they were the main guys. I did score up in Kabul one time. Uh, not a lot, but I did go up there and then I went up to Mazar Sharif on a couple of trips because that's where they said the best was at, the best hash. And so I went to Mazar and then to Balk Sharif, which is an old city, they call it. It's supposed to be like the oldest city in the world. It's just north of Mazar. And when I went up there, we would score powder, the hash, the raw hash powder, yeah. and take it back to Kandahar and have it pressed there because the Kandahar had the best pressers. Nice. But so I did score from, you know, a few different places other than the Tokis. But generally, I'd say 90% of it was the Tokis. Yeah. From Camp Kandahar, the Toki brothers. You know, it's funny because my first uh, couple times going to Amsterdam and I was uh, going into the shops looking for hash. And my favorite hash was that I picked of all the different ones I had tried was the Mazari Sharif. Which, yep. which I, I mean, I didn't know anything about where good hash was from or not from. Mm -hmm. But... Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's what I liked because it was dark and gooey and, and just like mm -hmm. so delicious. So so I, I guess yeah. I had good taste because I gravitated towards the good stuff. Well, that, that northern border there, the northern border of Afghanistan, is, there's really, really good hash up in there. Yeah. It comes across from Uzbekistan and Turk, Turkmenistan. I mean, there was a time back when hash was legal in India. And uh, they used to import from Turkestan the best hash in the world, evidently, in those days, back in the 1930s, 20s, and 30s, the best hash was coming from Turkestan. And the Indians, Indian government would buy it all up and ship it into India. And it was consumed in India. And it was a big, big product. I mean, it was a big commodity. And then the Chinese took over the area where the hash growers were and ran, pretty much ran them out of there because we're killing them. And so they left. And they migrated down into the Mazar Sharif area, I mean, the Panjir Valley, and then down into Mazar Sharif. And they became the, the major hash makers down there. And then Afghanistan became the major hash producer. And still to this day, Afghanistan is still the largest hash producer. Yeah. How but, you know, you don't you don't see it around. It goes to it goes to all the Arab countries and places like that, because it's part of their culture. Yeah. How, how long, how long was that first trip? How long did it take? Uh, how long were you gone and over there for that whole? That first one with me and Ricky was about a month because I okay. was, you know, I had to, we had to stop a couple of times cause I was sick. And then, yeah, I think it was about a month yeah. that first trip, that first trip. And then and after then that, we... yeah, after that you, you had other brotherhood members that kind of followed up and followed uh, through on your initial connection. I know, I think Glenn Lind uh, uh, did, did some runs in yeah who's robert well, lee andrist is because he, he that's fat bobby fat bobby oh okay he, he was, was part of it he, too yeah he was a guy that lived in the canyon he wasn't really part of the brotherhood but he kind of was he was he was what we would call second string he yeah. came from elsewhere later showed up in laguna he became a big dealer he was a really big pot and hash and acid dealer like Johnny Gale, you heard about him yes, too. Yes, yeah, yeah. His name. Those pops two up guys. Too. Those two guys were Laguna guys that, you know, used to tell everybody they were in the Brotherhood, but they really weren't. <laughs> but they were. They were affiliates with, with associates. Yeah. 
But the path that you blazed uh, over in, you know, from Europe to Afghanistan kind of eventually became a thing. It became known as like the hippie trail where lots of other Americans and Europeans started making this pilgrimage to the yep. east to score high quality hash and opium, which was like, yeah. it's kind of like a modern day Silk Road for drugs. Well, it was, it yeah. is, it is a Silk Road. It's the same trail. Yeah. It's the same exact yeah. same trail. Yeah. It's called the hashish trail, the Silk Road, and then the hippie trail. And, uh, those people back in those days, they, they didn't call them hippies though. They called them travelers. Yeah. But they were hippies, man. <laughs> they were still hippies. And they were coming from everywhere. They, you, it was a trip to go to go to like Istanbul. You'd see these people coming from Lebanon, Nepal, India, Afghanistan, Pakistan, you know, wherever there was. And they all had hash. They, all had hash. they used to shape hash, uh, plaques of hash, shape it like your foot and fit it in, a, in, in your shoes. They still do that. <laughs> Like, like like insoles, and you could wear those. I've you know, seen them in be... Amsterdam in the shoe shape. Yeah, yeah they still do that. Yeah. It's wild. Uh, you guys also, I know that the, um, I think the Toki brothers, or maybe one of your other associates, was also starting to make hash oil back in the day, like as early as 1972. Um, can, how much do you know about the hash oil? How was it made, and 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 who was making it back then? Because that's that's well, the earliest I know of it. Oh, we were making it way before that. It was we were making it Laguna, and after my second trip over there, I think um, '68, we started making it, and we were just taking hash and dissolving it in in uh, ethyl alcohol. Ah, okay. And, and uh, you know, and filtering it through coffee filter paper, and cooking off the alcohol and the black thick tar oil was what's left over. That was the original hash oil. And uh, Fat Bobby decided to try to make some in Afghanistan. So he, I guess he brought a bunch of alcohol with him over there and was able to get it there. And he was making, make, made some there. But uh, that was the first national. I can remember making it in my kitchen, you know, 1968. It became a commodity at the time. People, you know, were really interested in it because it was strong. And you just put a little dab on top of a bowl of, on top of a bowl of uh, weed, or you'd just smear a little on a, on a rolling paper and then roll a joint, call them, you know, Oilers. So you guys started bringing more and more stuff back. I know at one point you even outfitted a whole uh, motorhome to to uh, to send stuff back. Um, and then talk about the, I, you guys were getting it for like 15 or 20 mm. a kilo, and then you were selling it for like ridiculously inflated prices back in California, right? Well, yeah, the first time we went, uh, it was $4 a kilo. Wow. When me and Ricky went, the very first trip. And I think the second trip, it was 4 or $5 a kilo. But then they caught on because then people started showing up, more and more people wanting it, da, da, da. so the prices went up. I think at the last load I did out of Afghanistan was about $100 a kilo. But we were bringing it over here and selling it for 800 a pound. Because that was <laughs> my goal. My goal was to get the price of hash down over here. That's the reason I went in the first place. And so I was selling it for 800 a pound, you know, going for 50 an ounce. And these guys were turning around and doubling the, doubling the price or more, you know, which kind of pissed me off. But anyway, <laughs> but that was that was the goal. Yeah, it was four bucks a kilo when I first started. And then I think I say it was like 100 a kilo towards the end there before the brotherhood quit going. We, we had to quit going around 72 when the big bust came down. Yeah. 
um, and they were on they were on to it at that point yeah yeah we'll talk about that in a moment but before we uh stop speaking about the whole uh afghanistan hash connection i i need to ask you about your hookahs which we have acquired for our collection here in the museum um so i really wanted to get some good details about that we were able to acquire from you two Afghani hash pipes or hookahs or or I don't know if they're considered chillums or not, but uh, they they call they call them chillums there. That's their term for pipe, even okay. though it's not the, the little handheld chillum you see in India. That's a different. But the right the Af the Afghan pipes they have a they have a bamboo stems, a ceramic uh, b bottle or bowl or vase, the base, the main part, and then they have a ceramic bowl at the top. To put the hash in that's and those are called sarhana that's a sarhana and a lot of those are wrapped with chain mail because they, they get hot and they explode <laughs> i've seen them blow up so the chain mail's there to protect people and uh yeah the, the first time you smoke an afghani pipe it's quite an experience it, <laughs> i mean it literally gonna put you on the ground yeah i mean they uh they take that sarhana and fill it with minimum an ounce of, ounce of hash they break it up crumble it up into little tiny pieces and fill this big bowl up it's like an ounce and then they break up little tiny chunks of charcoal and put on pile a little pile of charcoal on top of that and then they piled on a bunch of stick matches <laughs> and then they would light the stick matches and take hits and when the, you take this big drawn hit it's like it's like a locomotion, like a uh, like like a train going by, like a big coal thing. I mean, the flame shoots up three or four feet into the sky, and the smoke. And you don't hold a hit. You don't take a little hit and hold it. You take these big, deep, deep inhales and blow them straight back out. In other words, you hyperventilate the hash smoke. Yeah. You take a big hit off this thing and then blow it out, and another big hit and blow it out, and just back out again. And you just hyperventilate with it until finally, man, it hits you, man, and you just fall. I know I, I threw up the first time. Yeah. And, man, I mean, it's like you never experienced. You didn't know cannabis could get you that high. Yeah. I, and, I, I got to experience that a couple of times in Amsterdam. There was this private uh, secret event called Legends of Hash, and, and the people uh, that run it uh, had uh, had one of those you know traditional chillum and they did it in the mm -hmm. traditional way, and so mm -hmm. you, everyone at the party would get up and at, at one point and and get in line and come take a big hit off of it. Uh, yep. And uh, man, it put people out. And and if you didn't, if if you didn't do it, if you didn't step up to do it, you kind of were looked at as kind of a pussy. <laughs> you kind of looked <laughs> yeah. at as like, if you're gonna be here at this dinner, you better step up. You know. Well, it got to the point where everybody had one of these pipes in their house. You know back here in the states it, it got to the point where when you got up in the morning and suddenly you having your morning coffee you smoked the big pipe oh, man. and it was like the social gathering we'd all get together in the morning like in dodge city you know when we first started doing it everybody would go to somebody's house to john's house or mark's house or somewhere in the morning and sit there and sit around mm -hmm. and take take your chance at the big pipe <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's what they called it. Your chance. Instead of your turn, it was your chance. No. Yes, after, after yeah. your, your chance. <laughs> well, let me but, ask you a little more about the these individual pipes. Where and when did you acquire them? And uh, is there an, is there any backstory to them that you can tell us about? Okay. Yeah. Well, the the backstory is that the the beaded those hand beaded stems, the bamboo stems and stuff, they came from Kandahar back in the '60s. I brought those back. 
the bolt, one of the bowls you got from me is the chainmail bowl from there as well. Those are both, those are all traditional. The other bowl is one I made. It's just a copy that I made out of uh, just ceramics. That's the red one, right? Like the maroon colored one. Yeah. 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 And then the, the, the vases themselves, the bottles, those are replicas of, of what the Afghan pipes look like. The only difference is these are stoneware. I, I made them on a pottery wheel, glazed them and high fired them. And I made them when I was in prison. <laughs> so wow. I was, I was, I uh, made them in the hobby shop in prison and told them they were flower vases and the, and the, the bowls, I made a bunch of them. And then the bowls, I told them those were candle holders. Hmm. You know, so, so the pipes are the, the, the two bot the bottles are replicas of, of the Afghani ones and they look just like them. And the bead, the main part of the pipe is is Af- from Afghan. So, so the, the, the authentic back. pieces are are from the maybe late sixties or so, something yeah, like probably that. Probably from six, probably from sixty seven or sixty eight. Yeah. And then what from, year did you make the the replicas? The bottles I made those during the eighties when I was in federal prison, which probably towards the end of the eighties when I was at the camp when they finally. I spent my first most of my years in a prison, and then finally the last last couple of years I got to go to what they call a camp, minimum security. Yeah, and that's where they had a hobby shop, and that's where I made those. Cool. Well, we'll we'll get to all that in a minute. Uh, but right now I need to take a commercial break, and we'll be right back with more with uh, Travis Eshbrook from the Brotherhood of Eternal Love here on Camp Apology. Elevate your every day with that Shuggies feeling, with the sweet taste of Shuggies. Add a cup of Shuggies to your morning coffee. Ah, how sweet it is. Shuggies infuses cannabis and cane sugar to make it the perfect sweetener with benefits. Make your happy hour happier with a dunk of Shuggies in your drink. Order your Shuggies now at S-H-O-O-G-I-E-S dot com or find it in dispensaries throughout California. Whenever you crave a little sweet, pick up Shuggies, the sweet, sweet, take-anywhere treat. Dazed and infused. Join sugar industry expert Latham Woodward for a happier hour each week for a lively and often hilarious discussion on the infusion of cannabis into food, beverages, and life. Explore exciting new culinary landscape trends with fascinating friends and guests who are leading the industry into the uncharted mainstream. Discover curated menus, enhanced cocktails, and live tastings. Life's a little sweeter here on Dazed and Infused. Hey, take a look at this. They're selling smart pots. They have pot that can make you smart? Where is it? Not that kind of pot. Smart pots are the best aeration container to grow your plants. Check this out. This is the original fabric container for faster producing healthier plants. They're made with a superior fabric that delivers high yields. Plus, smart pots are reusable and sustainable, so you can use them over and over again, no matter if you use them indoor or outdoor. That's very smart, but how good are they for the environment? Smart pots are BPA-free and lead-free, so you'll always be able to ensure a pure, clean grow, and they're 100% made in the U.S. Over 28 million smart pots have already been sold, so it seems like a smart investment. Look for smart pots and close to 2,000 garden centers throughout North America and ask for the original fabric container. Find a store near you or order yours online at smartpots.com. The 
American people are completely hung up on material acquisition, on power, on war making. It's an insane asylum over here. And it's our goal to lift the spiritual level of the American people. We're going to try to bring about a religious renaissance and a spiritual revolution. All right, and we're back. Uh, we're here with uh, Travis Ashbrook, one of the founding members of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, which was the biggest hash and LSD manufacturers and smugglers and distributors in the country, if not the world, for many years uh, throughout the 60s and into the 70s. So welcome back, Travis. Oh, glad to be here. So we, we talked about the origins of how you got involved with the Brotherhood, and we talked about uh, you know how, how things got started in Laguna, and you had moved to uh, Forbes Ranch up in Idlewild, and you had mentioned uh, a few times about Timothy Leary, uh, and obviously he's a huge figure uh, in the counterculture. He was the guru of, of acid uh, in the 60s, and he came to live with you guys in the winter of 67, and he kind of became... One of your spiritual leaders, I guess, alongside Johnny Griggs, right? You obviously knew Tim. You obviously spent time with him. What was your relationship with him like? Were you close with him? Yeah, we were pretty close. Um, there was a period of time uh, where I actually lived with him. My wife, Ann, was pregnant, and uh, we were living up at the ranch, and they had some hepatitis going through, infectious hepatitis from unclean living because so I, I think they had a sewage problem or something but timothy's house was set aside from the main part of the ranch from the main compound he had a house up on the hill but we call it the gatehouse and he had a, he had another uh, there was a bunkhouse up there so he had me and ann and, and cashy my daughter move up there and lived with them because she was pregnant and they people had hepatitis down there and we didn't want them to get it so I got pretty tight with him there, living with him in that house. And then, of course, we were we spent that, I think, almost a year at the ranch with him and then the time in Laguna. So, yeah, I got pretty tight with him. We were pretty tight. I mean, towards his later years, I, I hooked back up with him before he died. And I used to go up and see him in L.A. quite a bit oh, before he passed. That's nice. But he was an interesting guy. He was, yeah, he was our teacher, you know, I mean, he was, he was. We looked up to him. He was our parents' age, you know. He was in a ge different generation, but he was, you know, exposing psychedelics as, as the way to go and telling us we were doing right. I mean, it was like when you first we first started taking psychedelics. It was you would have a lot of soul searching. You know, is this the right thing to do? You know, is this really right? Because it it you know it changed your outlook on everything. It made you want to do whatever was right, just things that are right. You don't want to do wrong. And so there was a lot of questioning and coming in there and your ego would try to fight with you and tell you, oh, this is bad. But it took someone like Timothy to come along and tell us that, you know, encourage us and uh, tell us, you know, you're doing the right thing. Keep it on. Plus, he wrote guidebooks that told us how to, you know, the proper ways to take psychedelics to help you guide you through the experience. Because yeah. you can you can get off on the wrong foot. Sure, you know? sure. And and it could it could be pretty it could get pretty scary so anyway he was uh he was he was a real teacher to us the guy was a very intelligent man and he was a very spiritual person yeah and then john was more of the hard less intellectual more of just the experience kind of guy he was john was just the fearless fearless spark plug for all this you know but timothy was the intellectual side of it 
Yeah. So between the two, their energies, you know, was the core energy for the for the group. And you know, we looked we looked to both of them, although they they were brothers. We looked to them as brothers. Not you know, it wasn't a hierarchy. There yeah. wasn't a cult kind of a thing where everybody's just following some guy. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, through the years, and then Timothy kind of changed. He didn't practice what he preached towards the end there, and that's why things kind of went off off the rails. Yeah. When he did, when he decided to run for governor, is when things started. We thought things were going to get weird. We thought it was going to bring heat down on us, and it did. Yeah. It did. It, it. You know, they didn't even know about us before that. <laughs> they didn't even know about the brotherhood. We weren't paying attention to Timothy or any of us. And then when he decided to run for governor, and uh, things got things got <laughs> strange. That was '68, right? I think '68. Yeah, I think it probably was. You and know, then he got was... busted for weed uh, the day after Christmas in 1968, and I guess he had two roaches, and he got sentenced to 30 years in jail. Actually, they gave. I've I've heard all the different stories about it, but yeah, he had two roaches. Is all it was in the ashtray, and they gave him 10 years. Oh, 10 years. Okay. Yeah, yeah, they gave him ten years in state prison, and uh, just flat out ten years. And he would have had to do. I don't know. It was, I don't know if they still. It was still in indeterminate sentences in that days, or maybe I don't know. But he would have had to do quite a bit of time, you know. And he was in prison for that when we got him out. <laughs> you guys, uh, you guys helped break him out. You and uh, I. I should mention that the late uh, Michael Kennedy. Who was uh, rep- who represented Tim was as his lawyer. Uh, he also represented later on uh, High Times founder Tom Fursad and ended up becoming one of the main owners of High Times. He was my boss. I mean, when I worked oh, I at High that. Times, he I was know. my boss. Uh, so it's there's I have a real kind of personal connection in in a six degrees of separation kind of way here with it. But uh, you, it was it was the Brotherhood and Michael Kennedy and the the Weather Underground that broke Timothy out of jail. Right? Tell us tell us about that. Well, we we came up with the money, and we came up with the idea, and uh, Mike Randall kind of was spearheading it, and I know he flew over to Maui and got money from me and from Bobby Andrus. We both chipped in, I don't know, five grand each or so, probably, and I know we put $17,500 that we gave the weather people to transport Tim to Canada and handle the handle his, him and Rosemary's uh, paperwork their id they got canadian passports and stuff but uh yeah kennedy kind of was uh in between that he was been had been representing the weather people and he'd been representing us and he'd been representing timothy so he was kind of the go-between for all that and we did the actual uh you know hands-on stuff but uh yeah we we spent a lot of time planning that and putting the money together and Finally, we did it. Tim, Tim basically broke himself out, though. He was at uh, California Men's Colony, CMC West in uh, San Luis Obispo. Yeah, it's just it down the road a, from me where I live now. Yeah, yeah, it was that minimum security. They have a they have a main prison there. CMC East is a prison, and then right next to it is the camp. And it's just barracks. It was it was built after World War II for uh, kind of a rehab place for returning soldiers. But anyway, that place was, you know, just had a fence with barbed wire at the top. And it was a minimum security, level one. It was easy to get out of there. So Tim just, he jumped the fence at night. And we had it all planned out. And the weathermen people were waiting down on the road, down below, close highway there. And 
they uh, had two cars. One car took his prison clothes and stuff and went south and threw, threw his prison clothes out beside the road south of there. <clears throat> the other car went north and took him to Canada. Got him into Canada and then got him to Algeria. Eldridge Cleaver was living in Algeria then, and he was doing this crazy uh, expatriate deal there. And he, he said, oh, Timothy, you can come live over here. But Cleaver was not a good guy. So he was he basically was holding Timothy and Rosemary hostage over there oh, in Algeria. Man. Yeah, every time we go, we went over to visit him, and he would take you know all the money, and then we'd take him acid, weed, hash, money, Cleaver, because people would take it all and hardly give any of it to Tim. So basically, they were holding him hostage, and so they worked out a deal to get out of there. And so that's when he went to Switzerland, and uh, he told Cleaver that he got this opportunity to do lectures at colleges around Europe and uh Cleaver, and you know he give the money to Cleaver and he said, oh good okay so he let him go and when he got to got to Switzerland he just jumped off in Switzerland had an attorney and him and Rosemary got off there and then applied for asylum and uh, the U.S. was trying to extradite him at that point and Swiss wouldn't let him they let him stay there for a long time and uh finally Rosemary got tired of the scene as Timothy was holding court with all the European hippies, I guess it was a constant parade of people coming to, hmm. to see Tim. And uh, it just got to be such a scene. Rosemary got tired of it. She left. And then he hooked up with this Joanna Harcourt Smith. She was evidently was a girlfriend or wife or something of some guy named Michel Houchard. He was a French attorney, but he was an arms dealer. And we didn't know this, but he had made the arrangements to get Timothy out of Algeria, get him to Switzerland. And then this this chick was hanging around there and was his girlfriend. I don't know. Anyway, she became Tim's girlfriend and talked him into going to Afghanistan, of all places, for the, for like her birthday or something. Well, they were waiting for him there. The whole thing was a setup. Ooh. This this Michelle Houchard guy turns out he was an arms dealer with CIA connections. This lady was his girlfriend. The whole thing was a big plot to get him. And so when he showed up in Afghanistan, bam, they arrested him on the spot, brought him back to the States and let her come with him. So she was, you know, pretty much got out and she was a, she was an informant. She's tried to hook up with us since then. You you know, I get I still get friend requests from her. <laughs> Facebook. Yeah. It's crazy, you know. Yeah. And Tim did Tim Leary, I mean, I heard that Tim Leary actually kind of became an informant too. Is that true? Well, you know, technically I guess yes. But to defend him somewhat from this was what happened was he kept his mouth shut for quite a long time. And this lady, this Joanna Harcourt Smith was running around her and a guy named Martino, Dennis Martino, who was his brother was David Martino. Anyway, it was Dennis or David. They were two twin brothers. One of them was married to Tim's daughter. And the other one was just kind of hung around with Tim when he was in Switzerland. He was just kind of a groupie hanging out with him. He was he'd been around Laguna back in the day. So he knew who these guys were. And uh they were bad people. And after Tim got arrested, brought him back to California. I think he was in jail up in Sacramento or wherever. 
The only people that the feds would let visit Timothy was this Joanna Harcourt Smith and Martino. They were the only two. And those two had hooked up on the side and they were doing a thing and they were going around and collecting money from all of us for Tim's defense. And a lot of money was put up to help him. And he never saw a dime of it. And they kept, they'd go back in there and tell him, they'd go back in there and tell him, oh, nobody, the Brotherhood, they, they're all alive and hot and life of Riley off elsewhere. Nobody will help you. They don't care about you. They're, do, 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 do. Wow. you know, and ripped them off. And then, then they even did a, a ergotamine deal with this guy. I met the guy in prison years later. Somebody got a hold of them. Well, you're Timothy Mary's old lady. Do you know where you can get any ergot to make LSD? And she goes, oh, yeah, sure. So she gets Martino to pose as some dealer, and they got these bags of salt or whatever, and sold these people a couple kilos of salt, ripped these people off. And I, the, the whole thing they had going for me was Timothy Leary's old lady. So they figured, oh, okay, yeah. this is going to be cool, and ripped these guys off. So they were doing shit like that. They were not only stealing all the money that was supposed to go to a defense fund, and then they, then and then they were going in and giving Tim misinformation that everybody's abandoning you, nobody cares about you, nobody's sending you any money, and da 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 da. And then Martino and this Joanna Harcourt Smith took all the money and left, abandoned, ditched Timothy, ditched you know, left yeah. him in the lurch. He's sitting in jail thinking everybody's abandoning me now. And so that's when they got him to start talking. I yeah I understand. They, you know, they, they 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 you know they they use their intelligence. CIA is Central Intelligence Agency. Yeah. You know they use their, and so they did a whole number on his head, and uh, I mean you can you can understand he probably felt pretty goddamn abandoned and yeah. alone. No, that that puts and, it in a context that makes it make a lot more sense, and you could really kind of yeah. understand and sympathize with where Un his position. Yeah, why it happened, and then and then nobody went to jail because of him. You know, let's put it that way. Anything he told them, there wasn't enough there. or Because we didn't tell him what we were doing. Timothy, you know, wasn't really privy. He knew, oh, there's a load coming in this week or something, you know, up the branch. Oh, you guys got a load of hash coming. Cool. Yeah, yeah. But, he, you know, but he was never part of the planning or involved in any of right, it. We, right. you know, we just told him, you do your thing. You write your books. And do your lectures, you know, here and live at the ranch and take psychedelics. And be our teacher. We'll take care of everything else. Right? Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so that, you know, he didn't really have much. He could tell them. Um, he did tell them, you know, I think he did tell them that, you know, the Brotherhood financed his escape and the weather people were part of it. And he did give up uh, Michael Kennedy, I guess. But there was never enough there to go after it, to indict anybody on any of it. Yeah. Okay. You well, know? that that makes sense now uh, from based on what I had heard and, and stuff. So I wanted to also talk about obviously in uh, well the two leaders you guys had were like we mentioned uh, was Tim Leary and then was Johnny Griggs and in 1969 uh Johnny suddenly died uh unexpectedly allegedly of an overdose of synthetic psilocybin is that do you believe that's what happened is that exactly what happened or do you think something else was going happening no that's true that's what happened okay, okay. that's what happened but the thing was he had had hepatitis remember i mentioned they'd had hepatitis yeah. up at the ranch that winter so he was recovering, and he wasn't fully recovered. I don't think. I think he did body. I mean, that hepatitis takes a takes a lot out of you. It really messes with the liver. Yeah. And and high doses of psychedelics really take a, a, a stress on your on your on your system. 
you know, I mean, you're usually tired for a whole day. If you take, go out and take a high dose, you're going to spend the next day recuperating, resting. You know, it, it takes a lot out of you. It's a major deal. So I don't think John was real healthy because other people had taken that same psilocin that uh, Nick Sands had made it. And other people had taken it and didn't die. So, yeah. you know, he probably took, he took too much for one thing, and he wasn't healthy. You know, he was recovering from from a, a, a probably three or four months bout of hepatitis. Did the brotherhood were they able to stay together and stay cohesive, or after that? I mean, he was kind of the central figure for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For for quite a while, it, you know, at that point, uh, I'd say probably about eighty percent of the main guys moved to Maui. You know, and uh, some people were still down in Laguna, stayed there, but then a bunch of us moved to Maui. Yeah, that's exactly what I want to talk about next. But first, uh, I want to take another quick uh, commercial break. So stick around. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more on The Brotherhood here on Canthropology. Welcome back to Canthropology. Uh, I'm your host, Bobby Black, and I'm here with Travis Ashbrook, uh, founding member of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love and one of the nation's most notorious hash smugglers. Uh, so um, before the break, we were discussing about after the death of Johnny Griggs in 1969. Uh, that was around the time that some of the Brotherhood began moving to Maui. Now, I know that uh, from early on even, uh, some of the membership of the Brotherhood were some pretty famous, well-known surfers. Uh, Mike Hinson was was a star of the classic surf film Endless Summer. He was part of the Brotherhood, right? And and Chuck Mundell, who was uh, also a, a big surfer, was part of your group, uh, at least peripherally. And I heard a rumor that he actually came up with the name of the Brotherhood. Is that true? Yeah, Chuck. Chuck's the one that came up with the name. Chuck Mundell did. He just uh, passed recently, maybe less, about a year ago. Oh. Year and a half, year and a half ago, and uh, yeah, Chuck's the one that came up with the name. Hence, Mike Hansen was, uh, as you mentioned, was uh, star of the Endless Summer movie, which is still a classic and still shows a lot. And uh, Michael was with us in the beginning, first part of it, but then he kind of went off after he did that Endless Summer movie. He kind of was off doing his other, spending most of his time over in Hawaii surfing and stuff. Yeah. But he was in the original part of the Brotherhood. Chuck was around through the whole thing. Chuck, uh, Chuck lived in Laguna. He didn't live up at the ranch because <clears throat> when we bought the ranch, John only had couples come up there. So yeah, if you if you weren't married or had a you know had a, had a significant other, they you know we didn't want you up there at the time. Those guys used to come up on weekends for acid sessions and stuff, for big group <laughs> yeah. sessions. But as far as living up there, it was just couples. So was it was it you and and Mike Hinson who came up with the idea to use surfboards to smuggle hash? T tell us about that, how that idea came about, and how that operation went. Actually, uh, it was before I had done any hash things. Hinson and a guy named David Hall had taken a surfboard and ha had hauled it hauled it outboard, and went to India, and scored some Nepalese temple balls and fingers, the Nepalese stuff, mm -hmm. and uh, they grabbed I don't know anything. Or five, four or five kilos or something. And packed it in this board and shipped it back home through Hawaii. Got it back over here, and that's what gave me the idea to go start doing it. You know, 
and then that's when I started doing my my runs. But during that time, I I had made a couple board hollow boards and taken them over there in '69 and filled them with hash and put them on the car. And then I shipped the car back. They came back separately. The boards came back separately. The car came back, and the car had 500 pounds in it. The boards had uh, 40 about 40 pounds in it between the two boards. And they, <laughs> it was just bad luck. The, the boards came into into New York, United Airlines, and they sat out in a freight yard during an airline strike. United Airlines, the freight people were on strike. And so the boards arrived there and got stuck in New York and get transferred to LA. And they were in blue denim canvas bags. And they sat out there and the sun heated them up. The hash was fresh. Generally, we would dry our hash out before we packed it because it was, so it wouldn't get moldy in the two month trip to get it home. Mm-hmm. But this was coming right back with me, so I didn't bother to dry it out. I didn't think I'm going to have the fresh gooey stuff so I get home, man. <laughs> well, and they, these two boards get stuck in New York, and they were outside, and the sunlight was hitting those bags, and it was hot, and the hash went off. It 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 started to mold and ferment and rot, and the boards swelled up. They were they had a they had a long com- uh, compartment down the middle of the board, the full length of the boards. And they swelled up, and the hash was loose then. It rattled around. So when the strike was over and the guys picked the boards up to put them on a plane, it was rattling. And they what the fuck is this? And so they looked, and they found it. And they went ahead and shipped it on and then had me come and pick it up. And, in fact, they even helped me load the boards on my car and drove it up to the ranch. And they followed me with an airplane and a bunch of cars, and an airplane all the way up there. And then when I'm on the dirt road going up into the ranch, they swooped on us and busted, busted oh. us. Got me. <laughs> got me with the 40 pounds. Is that so? Is that the first time that the Brotherhood really got busted? Like, yeah, discovered? Yeah. And... and well, they didn't even know who what was what. Mm-hmm. They didn't know. And they, they, they wanted to know what was up that road, where we were going. And so they drove on up. They had me in the back of one of their cars and they drove on up and they come into the main compound of the ranch go what the hell is this and then all they see all these hippies coming out from everywhere going, who are you guys what do you want and they saw me in handcuffs and they just came and they <clears throat> they wanted my passport this is where's your house which house is yours and i pointed to it and told my wife go get his passport we want his passport that's all they wanted and they came back and they left but they didn't know Timothy Leary was there. They didn't know anything about the Brotherhood. They didn't know anything. And they never did. They never knew anything until somebody died up there the next year. And then they found out Timothy was there. And, uh, you know, they found out what was going on. So that, that so that bus didn't actually cause it did, any it major headaches any for the Brotherhood. No. no, it didn't bring any heat there at all. Not one way or the other. That was it. it was, people thought it did. And they were all, oh, you brought all this heat to the ranch and you shouldn't have been shouldn't have been bringing stuff here. And I, oh, everybody fucking had car. We had truckloads of pot come up there every weekend from Mexico. We'd unload them in the, unload them in the barn. I mean, that was a regular from the day one. So it wasn't any big deal. Plus John's the one that told me to bring it on up. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, but that was, that was what happened. So I, that's what I went on the run for that. I got, I got sentenced to five years in federal prison for that. Yeah. And, and I'd been living on Maui 
Is that when you moved to Maui was to escape that heat? Uh, yeah. Well, well, yeah, it wasn't long after that. Well, yeah. after, no, no, actually, no, I didn't move to Maui till later. That, that was the first part of 69. I didn't move to Maui till after John died, which was in like July or August of 69. So I was still around Southern Cal doing stuff. Did you move there uh, to escape from heat or did you just want to go there? No, I was already basically living on the run. You know, when once that brotherhood thing happened, I mean, the, when the surfboard thing happened, I uh, I just you know got some fake passport and started living under a different name, practicing for when I was going to have to do it for real. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so what was your well, what was your time in Hawaii like? You you were continuing to smuggle while you were there, right? Oh yeah, yeah. I was going to Afghanistan, you know, every six months, and then later on. After we'd been doing that and things were, you know, being so successful, we were making so much money. I was living in Maui and I got thinking, you know, we need to do something a little bit bigger. Let's do something. Let's change. So I got thinking, let's, let's buy a boat and fill it, you know, buy a boat over in the Caribbean, sail it around to Mexico, load it up with really good weed. There was really good pot. was just starting to hit the colitas. Buds were just now instead of the old brick weed. There were finally buds were starting to happen. And uh, we had a real good connection in Guadalajara for really good pop. So I said, look, why don't we sail? Why don't we sail this? Go buy a boat, sail it around to Mexico to the Pacific side, load it up with weed, and sail it over here to Maui. And people are going, what are we going to do all that weed over here? I said, look, we get all that pot over here. People will come from the mainland to get it. And they'll come because we'll have the good pot. And, you know, it, it, it won't be any problem moving it. So we set off to do this. I went around and found a few guys that knew how to sail, put together a crew, and got some invest, few investors together, came up with the money, which was pretty easy at that point, and anybody was willing to give me their money. <laughs> they, yeah, because we paid good. I mean, I think it was 10 to 1 we used to get people for their, on their money back in those days. And anyway, uh, we... Me and the crew, we took off. There was five, four or five of us, five of us. And we went down to St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands. And uh, we found a we looked around for a boat. We found a 60-foot schooner, needed some work. And we checked it all out and bought it, started working on it. We spent about a month getting her fixed up. And then in the mean, and, and why that was happening, I had already sent a couple guys to Mexico to go meet with Papa. So I had I had three guys sitting down there scoring the load near Guadalajara. And I was uh, over on the boat and then I flew over to Guadalajara to see how things were going with them and made a few changes. They needed more money and Smitty, one of the guys there, he was not, he wasn't, he was bumping heads with Papa with the connection. So I sent Smitty to the boat and said, look, they need a carpenter over there. You can help over there because he was a carpenter. So I sent him to the boat. He was glad to go get out of Mexico. And then there was just this guy named Manana who was the main guy. I had him in charge of everything in Mexico and Eddie Padilla, the two of them. And so I checked on the low. They needed more money. So then from there, I flew to Mau. No, I flew up to, to Laguna and got some more money, took it back down to Mexico to them. And then, uh, Went and then just started waiting and stayed in touch with everybody. And finally, they got the boat done and sailed it down and up the coast of Mexico and got up to the Manzanillo. 
And we went down and loaded the, loaded the thing up with the weed, and they sailed it across to Maui. We unloaded it at McKenna Beach in broad daylight. <laughs> and that was back. McKenna Beach was where all the hippies used to. That was the naked hippie camp on Maui back in those days. It was just this. There was two or three hundred hip, naked hippies living there on the beach, and it was it was a trippy place. And they were all standing there, right? You know, this big crowd of hippies standing there. Yelling and cheering as we were loading loading the dinghy up and bringing in big you know, gunny sacks of weed to shore and throwing them in cars and heading up into the hills. But we brought back about five thousand, I think, over five thousand pounds wow. of weed. And the plan was to sell that weed and then go buy a load of hash, a big load, like you know, three or four tons. Sail the boat to over to Karachi, Pakistan from Maui, sail, continue across. And then I was going to go up to Kandahar and set up, set up the load and make the arrangements for them. And they said they could deliver it to us in down in Karachi. They could get it into Pakistan and bring it down. So I went, I went and scored the hash, got everything together, had it all ready, went back to Maui. Everybody was just sitting on their asses on Maui, high on the hog at, most of those guys never had that much money in their lives, and so nobody was work, had to work. Everybody was just surfing and enjoying life. I think I didn't leave the island for 11 months, and then it got to the point where I said, well, we better get this show on the road. The boat was sitting over in Honolulu in the harbor at the docks. Yeah. Nobody had been near it for six months or more. So finally, I just told, told my wife, I said, you know what? we got to move over there under the boat and start working on it. You know, if we get over there, the rest of the guys will follow. So we did. We moved moved off of Maui, moved to, to Honolulu, onto the boat, and started working on it. And slowly the guys started showing up, the crew. So they all they all came together, and uh, we started getting her ready to go sail it, sail it to Pakistan. Well, in the meantime, my lawyer gives me a call and tells me, hey, your appeals have run out on the case pending for two surfboards full of hash. And then I had to leave when, when, when they told me I had to turn myself into prison, that I lost my appeal. My appeals were up. It's been out. I've been out a couple of years and I had to, I had to boogie. So I finally, uh, once I got left the boat, just sat there. I mean, it was, if I wasn't there to make it happen, it didn't happen. You know, those guys were still there working on the boat when I had to leave and uh, the boat was getting ready to go. I'd already gone and scored the hash. The hash was sitting in Afghanistan. The boat was in Hawaii getting ready. And then all of a sudden, I had to just go. And what I did was uh, bought myself a part of an island off the coast of Honduras in the Caribbean. I bought a dive resort down there. Wow. And took off and moved down there with my kids. And uh, that was the end of that. <laughs> <laughs> Let me, I want to ask still you. Continue. I still continued to go to Afghanistan from, from Honduras. I was going wow. over there twice, twice a year doing loads and doing them into the States and, yeah. and going back and living in Honduras in this beautiful little dropped out island called Roatan. Cool. I, w I wanted to ask you also about Hawaii, a couple of things. Uh, one is, uh, is it true that the, that the mythical Maui Wowie strain was that the brotherhood that you guys were involved in creating that, that it was a cross between some of the Mexican weed and the Afghani strains that you brought back to the island? Yes, that's true. The original Maui Wowie was the seeds from the Affy load, the boat, the boat load that we did. Wow. The boat, the, the boat was called the Affy. Like Afghanistan, <laughs> the, but, the, the, the two masted, <laughs> two masted schooner, and, uh, and that, 
Yeah, but that was and it, it was crossed with with the Mexican weed in 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 Hawaii, right? Yeah. Well, the the Lone Athiathi was Mexican buds, and it was some of the best pot ever come out of Mexico. It was really good. And yeah, that was they started they started growing that over there, and then the other guys were bringing seeds back from Afghanistan, and then they crossed it, and that was Maui Waui came from. That's the wow. That's the the origins of it. The the other thing I wanted to ask you about Hawaii was um, I know that Mike Henson's uh, surfboard company was called Rainbow Rainbow Surfboards, um, and then I I read that uh, mm-hmm. in July of 1970 Hendrix Jimi Hendrix came over and he played a free concert on Maui at the slopes of Mount Haleakala, uh, which which ended up becoming part of the classic cult film uh, Rainbow Bridge. Uh, now. I read online that the Brotherhood was kind of involved in that concert, that Hinson was involved in the filming, uh, and and that you and that the Brotherhood was kind of hanging out, uh, smoking a, a hookah on the side of the stage during the concert. Is that true? And if so, were you oh, part yeah. of that? Yeah, it's all true. When Jimmy came to the islands, he hung out with us. Man. He hung out on Maui with us. He was at our house every day, when it, when it, somebody's <laughs> house every day, smoking the pipe. We took him to Honolulu Bay. Tried to get him out on the water, and he cut his foot on the rocks. Oh. So he never did get in the water surfing. But but he hung out with us for a couple of weeks before the concert. So he was tripping out, smoking with you guys. Yeah. yeah, he wouldn't take acid though, man. He was into he was into downers, man. He was yeah. into into you know barbiturates and opiates and shit. Really? What and about coke? mescaline? I, I read that he he took some mescaline. Well, he took mescaline, he took acid and stuff too, but he just, you know, at that time he was in the Coke and other things because I tried yeah. to get him, you know. And then during the Rainbow Bridge concert, I tried to get him to take some acid and he goes, no, I'll take some with you later. And, uh, you know, he he came out he came out on stage and he played like three songs, three or four songs and left, went back into the tent. That was it. And there was like 10,000 hippies sitting there, man. And they were, everybody had turned on. Everybody had taken something. And it was just kind of like we were left all of a sudden high and dry. Wait a minute. So I know Johnny Daw, myself, and Russ, Russ Harrington went over to his tent and went in the tent. And we were, you know, they saw, they, come on in, you guys. We were all buddies. We'd been hanging out with him. And he's sitting on the grass in this tent with a couple of chicks and one of a chick on each arm and we sit down in front of him and I'm going, man, you, you got to come back out and play somewhere. He goes, oh, really? Well, I would, man. I said, so you got, you got 10,000 people sitting out here in this whole place and they, you know, three songs, wasn't it? You know, come on, man. And I, he says, well, I don't know. So I had, Johnny Daw hands me a little glass vial of white powder <laughs> and it was crystal acid. It was crystal sunshine. Oh, okay. Pure crystal. And so I I break a blade of grass off the ground and get a little bump of it, a little line, you know, and I pull it out. I says, here, try this. You'll like this. This will make you want to play. And he goes, what is it? I thought it was Coke. His eyes open. Oh, yeah. I said, no, it's pure acid. It's crystal acid. And he goes, oh, no, no, man. I'll do it sometime later. I said, look, it's okay. And I snorted it just to show him, you know. <laughs> well, I'd already taken a couple of hits earlier that day. And I think I'd take, yeah, I'd take mescaline that morning as well. You know, I was already you know, completely in the zone. <laughs> and I snorted that and he looks at me and he goes, God, I'll play for you guys anytime. He gets up, grabs his guitar and they, they go back out on stage and we're walking out and Johnny Dahl looks at me and he goes, Travis, you better go grab your ass somewhere and sit down. Cause you're, I says, why? He goes, you know how much acid you just took? <laughs> and I said, no, I didn't even think about it really. And he goes, well, you just took well over a hundred hits, man. Oh my God. You know, because you can't see a dose of crystal yeah. mescaline 
you know, because it's, it's measured in micrograms. And a dose, say 200 mics, which would be two doses in today's thing, but back in those days, that was a dose. You couldn't see that in the naked eye. And this was a line. I, I just the line. Well, sure enough, I went and laid down, and I, I can remember him starting to play. And then the next thing I know, I'm waking up and it's dark out. There's wow. You just slept it off around. mostly, huh? I didn't. I just went in, in a trance. I don't know where I went. I was out unconscious. <laughs> and oh, when man. I came to, everybody was gone. And I'm going, oh, Jesus. And I got up and I walked down the hill. And my wife and kids are sitting in the car because I had the keys. And she was pissed off. Where you been? It's been hours, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But, but yeah, then he played another concert over at uh, Oahu the next week. Because I know we went to it. He gave me tickets. And then the week after that is when he died. Wow, over in over in London. Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, I read that the first time he ever took LSD was at the Golden Bear. <laughs> I don't know really? if that's true, but that's what I read online. Well, was, it could it could yeah. be true because you know the consciousness runs through. It's funny because I worked at the Golden Bear from sixty three, sixty four, sixty five. I was hang, hanging out and sometimes worked as a stage manager there and hung out there and used to sell weed and acid and mescaline to all the folk singers. You know, there were people there that later on became famous. You know, there was guys like uh, Peter Tork. Yeah, the from, monkeys. From the mon- monkeys. He yeah. was a dishwasher there. The <laughs> there. Well, I remember when he came out, he was from D.C. He came out there and he could play. He, could, he had a banjo and a guitar and he could play really good. And he, he came out there, thought he was going to be a big music star. And he, he did. They used to have what they called Hootenanny Nights, which was basically mm-hmm. a tryout. You'd come and play for free and they, you know, get yeah. to see you. And uh, he ended up getting a job as a dishwasher. <laughs> and I gave him his first LSD. I turned him on to his first LSD. Oh, that's cool. He didn't have a good time. Oh. He got really violently nauseous. He threw up all night. Oh, poor monkey. Yeah. <laughs> poor Peter. Yeah. Peter Torkelson. That was his name. Yeah, yeah. Torkelson. But, yeah, there were a lot of people like that. I got to know Jimmy, Jimmy McGuinn from the Birds. And... Uh, Oh, there were so many people there. Yeah, those were the days, man. I'll tell you, uh, Southern California in the 60s was pretty, in the coastal communities, it was pretty far out experience, pretty place to live. Yeah. An, an unbelievable time to be. Yeah. Of it was course. paradise. Yeah. It was paradise on earth. You know, the beaches were clean. Everything was clean. There were no freeways yet. Wow. You know? Well, I mean, you could drive down to any beach and just... Go sleep on the beach and build a bonfire and sleep. You don't care. Yeah. You can't do that anywhere no, anymore. No, no. You know, unfortunately, all good things do come to an end, though. And uh, that brings us to the part of this interview where I have to uh, talk about how the dream of the Brotherhood uh, started to crash down. Uh, so in, in January of 1972, there was a bust in Portland. Uh, 1,300 pounds of hash were seized. That was the largest quantity ever seized in the United States. And a month later, it was followed by another bust in Vancouver, 729 pounds. But the real big one came on August 5th, 1972, when the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, which was the precursor to the DEA, uh, executed the biggest drug raid in American history against the Brotherhood. Uh, it was They called it Operation Bell, B-E-L, for the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. It was a multi-state, multi-agency operation. Search warrants were executed in Hawaii, California, and Oregon, resulting in 57 arrests and the seizure of around $8 million in drugs. Now, at the time, were you in Maui? Were you in Honduras? Where were you when that went down? I was in Honduras. 
And I got warned shortly after that happened that they know where you're at and they're coming to get you. And so, you fled uh, to Mexico, right? No, well, I actually fled uh, through me- yeah, into Mexico, okay. into Belize, then to Mexico, and just went around. I ended up in, in uh, uh, St. Vincent in the West Indies. And you you were on the lam for a while. I'd already been on the run for the yeah. for the for the surfboards, and so in '72 when this this thing came, this brotherhood indictment came down. Yeah, I was already got long gone, um, and I I got they would get thirty to thirty six count indictment or something of that nature. <laughs> it was oh big. Boy. It was a big indictment. Yeah, there was a uh, in October 1973. The following year, the U.S. Senate had a hearing on the Brotherhood. We have a one of the items in our collection is one of the original copies of of that report entitled uh, "Hashish Smuggling and Passport Fraud: The Brotherhood of Eternal Love." We have one of the yep. original copies of that, uh, and uh, also um, that that report excerpts of that report were printed in the second ever issue of High Times in the fall of 74 and we have that issue in our collection as well oh man yeah Good. so that's Good. pretty cool um we i assume you were named in that senate report <laughs> oh yeah I'm, I'm in it i'm in it i'm all over in it yeah so the report yeah. the report uh outlines the full extent of the brotherhood's operations and holdings uh, at the end of it all here is the final tally according to them Th- this is some great great statistics i'm going to run down here over 100 arrests uh, 546 acres of property seized, as well as four LSD factories, 1.5 million doses of LSD, uh, 3,500 grams of crystal, which was capable of producing another 14 million doses, uh, six hash oil labs, 30 gallons of hash oil, 6,000 pounds of solid hash, uh, 104 grams of peyote, 8 pounds of amphetamine, uh, over 13 pounds of cocaine, two marijuana canning operations, uh, a pill, uh, orange sunshine pill press, 1.8 million in cash, and over 70 million dollars was assessed in back taxes. Mm. Wow, what a haul! <laughs> yeah, but you know they 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 inflated. That's so blown. Oh God, it's so blown out of proportion. They took every bust over a whole period of time and put that together, yeah. trying to make it look like they did all that right then. Yeah, Plus, yeah. Plus the the methamphetamine and stuff like that. That wasn't us. That wasn't none of us. We do. We weren't in the in you know, the cocaine and the meth. That wasn't us. So there I mean, was probably somebody who was loosely affiliated with you that had that, and they tied it in, right? Basically. Yeah. You know when the Brotherhood indictment came down, and my mother sent me a copy of the wanted poster. Right? She got. She took it off the post off the post office wall. And I was a, I was living in Honduras, and she came. She sent it to me, and I didn't even know over half the people on that poster. You know, there were so many people that claimed to be in the Brotherhood that ended up, ended up getting busted, and they weren't in the Brotherhood. They're, you know, if your products from the Brotherhood, they sold themselves, and so consequently, back in those days, everybody wanted to, you know, say, "Oh, this is from the Brotherhood. This is from the Brotherhood." You know, it was a great sales pitch. You know, so a lot of people got themselves in deep shit. You know, because of that, and they weren't in the brotherhood. Like I say, half the people on that poster, I, I don't even know. I have no clue who they are. Yeah. While you were um, on the lam from everything, you were still continuing to uh, to be involved with hash and smuggling, right? I mean, you you, you oh, continued. Yeah. I mean, I know that. Uh, actually, that brings me. I wanted to ask about the other great items that we were able to procure from you for our museum, uh, which are the four cloth hashish wrappers from uh from lebanon right they're from lebanon 
Yes, yes, from Bekaa Valley, Baldbeck. So those are from around the year 78, I believe you, you said? Yes, those were from 78. I was involved with, I had another boat. I had an Italian partner <clears throat> and a Lebanese partner. And I was doing a load a year out of there, about 5,000 pounds, I mean, five tons at a time. Wow. So that was when I got indicted and got busted on in 1980. But they never got any hash. It was just all conspiracy, <laughs> conjecture, you know, just just conspiracy stuff. So but that was when they finally got caught up with me. Oh, me yeah. I know that uh, one of the most famous hashes to come out of Lebanon was the Red Lebanese. Was was that part of your load, or was that all of your load? Or? Oh no, we had we had we had the red, we had the gold, the blonde. We our loads were so big; it was from so many different farms that there were, you know different bags, different colored bags and different hashes. I mean, there were bags that were like two or three ounce, little small bags that were like almost like Bull Durham cloth bags. And then there was the big kilo ones and in between half kilo, different farms, different colored bags, different stamps. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, because each of them has a different uh, stamp, uh, and I wanted to ask you if you knew if there was any significance to them. One one has purple ink with two faces, one has blue triangles, one has a green camel with what looks like a monkey on his back, and another one is kind of a brown stamp with a wicked Disney so queen they, on it. They all came from a different farm. That's was, it, uh, yeah. Yeah, if, it, if their stamps were different, because, you know, the, the producers over there, and I mean, there's so many, and it's such a vast area. They make so much. And they're back into it big time now, I guess. Lebanon, the Beccan Valley, and I guess things have calmed down because it's right on the Syrian border, so there was a lot of problems up there. But evidently, they're they're producing hash there. Oh. So I understand. You, you mentioned that it was in 1980 that they finally caught up with you and you got busted. Can you tell us the circumstances of, of how that happened? How'd they, how'd they catch you? Well, I rented a Learjet out of a place in Long Beach to go down to the West Indies and meet my connection and take him his money. And uh, I rented this Learjet from Executive Air in Long Beach, California. And I've been recommended by some other smugglers. Oh, yeah, we use these guys all the time. It's great. They don't ask questions. You can go in there with cash. So I went in there and rented a jet, set it all up. Well, it turns out that the co-pilot was a DEA agent. And so I rented this jet to take me to Puerto Rico. And then I was, my partner, Mario, my Italian friend, was coming in his sailboat to pick us up there and sail us down to St. Martin to meet with Abdul, the connection, and give him his money. And so I didn't know this, 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 this plane was, had a DE agent on it as, as the co-pilot. So they got, we got down to Puerto Rico. We went and rented a hotel, a couple hotel rooms. And I left my room to go to the room next door to smoke. I had all the money over in my room. And then the people that were with me, my wife and me were in one room. And then my, my stepsister and one of my partners were in the room next to us. And we went over there to smoke it because we had all the, mm. all the money in my room. So anyway, <laughs> this son of a bitch just broke into my room. I wasn't even out of there for more than a half an hour. They broke in my room illegally and opened up all the suitcases and found uh, $3.7 million. <laughs> And so they didn't know how much was there. It was just three suitcases full of money. And they took pictures of it all and put it all back and left. And then the next day, they watched me drive out to the other end of the island and took cabs to the other end of the island. They watched me get on a sailboat and sail away. And so at that point, 
they left and went back to L.A. and they sat in there and went over everything and said, we, we don't even know who this guy is. And we don't know what this was going from. We don't, we don't have a clue. And uh, they dropped the case. This was DEA, right? They just they just dropped the case. They just threw it through the side and said, you know, this is just, we don't even know what this is about. This guy took a bunch of money out of the country, obviously, but we don't know what it is. So Customs came along and saw the case and says, well, you know what? This is our purview, purview because of the money, smuggling money out of the country. So the Customs, evidently, the this Customs agent didn't have much to do, so he started researching my case. And he had the license number of the car that I'd been driving, and it was registered to a car dealership up in Reno because I used to buy my cars there, and then I would register them there and have the car dealer. He would re- register them for me. Mm-hmm. Because I lived on the right over there on the California side, so you didn't have to pay taxes. Yeah, on, on cars, you know, they didn't have sales tax in, in Nevada. Anyway, he they tracked that car to there, and then said, "Well, this guy that owns it, he lives down in somewhere down by Bishop, by the Sierras there." So they got my PO box address. That's all they had. They went there and sat and staked out the post office box, and then my wife went up there one day. We she go there about once a month. She went up there to pick up the mail. They followed her back down to the town of Lone Pine, where I lived. And they came to my road, which is a locked gate. And then I lived like three miles up this windy dirt road into this box canyon. And I owned this place called Lost Valley Farm. Well, they couldn't get up there. So they were they were at a dead end. They were going, well, we see this guy here, who he is. And he lives here. And we don't know what's going on. So they staked the place out. They started, you know, they ended up sort of watching me, and they'd see I'd come down and use pay phones in town because we didn't have they didn't have cell phones then, and uh, we did everything through pay phones. And so they they went ahead and tapped all the pay phones in the town of Lone Pine. <laughs> oh they tapped every single wow. it's a small town. They tapped every pay phone in that town, and they spent like a year trying to figure out who the hell I was. And then then once they figured out who I was, they spent another year trying to catch me. Now they finally got me with a load of money. Fly into the Cayman Islands. That's when they finally arrived. They got you me. on the plane, right? Like right on the plane? I got on the plane. They closed the door of the plane, pulled it away from the gate, and pulled it right back to the gate. So that way I officially left the country. Wow. I officially left left the country so they could charge me with the, with not declaring the money. In those days, it was $5,000. It's 10 now, but you, yeah. you had to declare it. It was five grand, and I had 100, 200, $270,000 with me at that time and they uh so they charged me with that and then spent a couple of weeks getting me back to california got me up to sacramento and then there was all my friends all my partners were all they had us had most of us a few guys they didn't get they didn't catch a few of them but they caught most of us and then so that was that was that was the beginning of a long ordeal so i still owed them the five years that i'd been on the run from yeah and then they they charged me with the rico rico act and uh what they had on me was the 848 which is the kingpin law and the rico's carries life without parole and confiscation confiscation of all properties well that was the only way they could get my stuff was to charge me with that yeah because back in those days they just having a drug case didn't automatically you know forfeit your that Mm. that came later that came later so anyway they uh make a long story short the judge threw the whole case out. We were going to walk, and then the Ninth Circuit appealed it. They over, you know, the prosecution appealed it. Ninth Circuit upheld the 
the appeal, overturned the judge. And so it was time to go make a deal because the judge was on our side at that point. He was pissed. They'd overturned his ruling. Yeah. And so, uh, so we made a deal. We cut the deal. I got, I got the 13 years plus the five I owed him. Ooh. And how much did you end up serving of that? All of it? Or? Ele- um, 11 years. 11 years. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh man. All right. Well, I want to get back with you one more one more quick break, and then we're going to come back and talk about what's happened since then, which is okay. which is good which is good news and good stuff. So, uh, stick around, everybody. Uh, we're going to take one more quick break, and we'll be right back with Travis Ashbrook here on Camp Apology. Doc Rob, the concierge for better living. Cannabis is just one of the many great plants that we have on this planet called Earth that we can use consciously and intelligently to improve our well-being. Take a real, raw, inside look at healthier living while sharing great ideas and improvements for a better quality of life. Learning to live and live well is a lifelong process. This is a journey. It could be you could be 80 years old or eight years old. You can still learn something that's gonna make tomorrow a little bit healthier, a little bit easier, a little bit happier, a little bit better. The concierge for better living with Doc Rob. Only on cannabisradio.com. Oh, let the marijuana llama tell you something now. About a game for your phone, gonna make you say, wow! The game's about the game of growing cannabis for cash. Grow the seeds, sell the bud, put the savings in the stash. Little by little, your empire grows large. Put the big celebrities inside your entourage. You can choose to play with Snoop or me or Cheech and Chong. Cypress Hill, Willie Nelson, Wiz Khalifa with a bong. The name of the game is Himping, that's the point. Download and play while you light yourself a joint. The business of cannabis should be no crime. Hemp Inc. is even hot-proofed by the man who run high times. Oh, yeah. Get it on Android and I and iOS today. Marijuana Llama out. Got to tend to me on crops, you know. Money don't make itself. Hemp Inc. Welcome to Cannabis Confidential. I'm your host, Dr. Dina. We've got David Faustino on the line. Bud Bundy from Married with Children. Did you feel nervous being a celebrity walking into a weed store? I don't remember at all being like, ooh, I'm scared someone's going to take my picture here. What are they going to say? Bud Bundy smokes Bud? I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be a big shocker. Hey, this is David Faustino, and I'm on Cannabis Confidential with my girl, Dr. Dina, on CannabisRadio.com. All right, guys, we're back here on Canthropology. My guest this week is one of the founding members of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, Travis Ashbrook. So uh, before the break, Travis, we had just ended off where you had been, well, ended up serving 11 years in prison for your hash smuggling, tax evasion, all, all those uh, all those good things. <laughs> um, so uh, what was, was prison real hard? Were you able to deal with it all right? Uh, I, I know you're an enlightened guy after having taken so many spiritual uh trips over your life you pro- you probably were able to kind of go into your head a bit maybe yeah it wasn't it wasn't as bad i mean it wasn't as bad as it could have been the worst part was the first first year in the county jail county jails are really bad to spend any amounts of time in but then once i finally got got to a prison after like it was almost two years finally got to to uh they got sent me to Terminal Island down in 
San Pedro, Long Beach. And believe it or not, at that time, that place was like a big party, 24 hour a day party. It was unreal. <laughs> wow. And there was nothing like I expected. <laughs> I mean, you could get anything, you could have anything you wanted there pot, booze, whatever. It was there. And uh, it, it, that lasted for about the first four years. And then, then that place got busted because a bunch of staff got caught, you know, crooked staff. And yeah. so it, it changed. <laughs> But uh, no, it wasn't all that bad. I mean, it, it, it could have been a lot worse. It's worse nowadays. The prisons are a lot worse nowadays than they were then. The federal prisons at that point in time weren't, weren't getting any street, street people, you know, like state prisons. You didn't get your common criminals. Most everybody in there was smugglers, bank robbers, and white-collar criminals, yeah. federal, federal stuff. So I met a lot of smugglers, a lot of... <laughs> I mean, it was there was coke smugglers, hash smugglers, big kingpins. I mean, I met people from cartel people. I mean, so many people that I met in there that would blow your mind. What uh, <laughs> what year did you go in, and what year did you finally get out? Well, we got busted in 1980. I got down to finally got into the prison around 82, and then uh, I got out in it was 90. It was 11. It ended up being 11 years. Yeah. So I got went in eighty, got out in ninety one. Well, what was it like when you when you came out? Was uh, did the world seem different? Did you have a hard time readjusting? Not really. There wasn't much of a transition for me. You know, I just went into business. I went. Into, I bought bought a little restaurant, ran that for a while, and then I started doing some other stuff. I started making surfboards again. Then I decided to, I was going to build a surf resort in Mexico. We bought some property and we built a built a resort and uh, opened the resort in '95 and did really well. Did really well with it until 9/11. Oh, yeah. And then 9/11 came along and uh, nobody wanted to fly. Sure. So didn't. So I, I had to kick back. You know, people had booked up. I had to you know give refunds. People didn't want to come. Yeah, yeah. Business got really bad and mm. it got to the point where we had to you know we had to sell it. So I ended up selling the place. Yeah. So in in uh, in like 96 is when Cali first legalized for medicinal use ca cannabis in California. Um, uh -huh. And so I was just curious as someone who's been uh, through what you've been through and seen what you've seen and done what you've done. What was it like for you watching states begin to go legal and seeing cannabis become legal around the country in various places? It was something I didn't think was going to ever happen. You know, I was blew my mind when it started happening, and then you know since then. But you know, it has it has both. You know, I, I don't know. There's two sides of it. I love I love the fact they're not sending people to prison for it anymore. But I don't like the big the big business that's gotten involved in it now, and they've knocked all the little guys out, all the yeah. little growers and guys that pioneered this whole thing have been left out in the cold. You know, the small time growers and, and the small time dealers and stuff, and people like that that pioneered it and paid the dues. And then they got left out in the cold now, you know, they're getting aced yeah. out. I mean, I went to work for a big company in Nevada here a couple of years ago when they legalized medical. So they, these people got a hold of me and wanted me to come up and be their grower and produce all their uh, extracts, right? Yeah. So I went to work for these guys from the ground floor. I mean, we broke ground. Out of, they bought 40 acres of land out in Amagosa Valley, out by Area 51. And uh, I built a big, beautiful facility, man. Big greenhouses, huge big indoor grow room for the floral, the vegging, and clone room, and 
big extraction facility and a huge kitchen, a huge lab. And this place was, they spent, a, you know, they spent like seven million bucks on it. And then the state of Nevada, right when I was getting ready to harvest my first crop, the state of Nevada got wind that I was working there and ran me off. Oh, man. Yeah. Because up there, you can't have any kind of criminal records to work in there. Oh. <laughs> and you've got to be, be a registered agent. Like, a, like yeah. a, same same to work in a casino. you got to, yeah. you know, so so they ran me off. And the company had no choice but to let me go. You know, and they yeah. were going to pull their license if they didn't. Yeah. But I spent a couple of years working for them. And I mean, God darn, I wish I this wouldn't have happened because they turned around and sold the place for $70 million here <sighs> last, last year. Yeah. You know, wow. just a couple of years after I left, and they turned around and sold it for seventy million, and I would have got a big chunk of that. Yeah, you know, man, that sucks. I, yeah, it would have it would have put me in nice retirement shape. I wouldn't have had sure, sure. I I've seen you. I've seen you at, at so many cannabis events. You kind of became a regular at especially the California cannabis events. Uh, but if I'm not mistaken, I believe the first time we met was when you came over uh, to Amsterdam with Michael and Carol to. Uh, to the Cannabis Cup when High Times inducted you guys into the Counterculture Hall of Fame, right? Is that when we first yeah. met? Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. That was, was in 2011. It was the 24th annual Cup. Yeah, it was the year they got raided. Yeah, and I, that was the year I wrote the feature story about it in the, in the, in the magazine too. So right. that yep. was really yep. cool. Um, so what was uh, what was that like for you? Uh, I mean, I know that the Brotherhood mostly your whole lives tried to stay under the radar and not be identified. What was it like to go over there and be recognized and honored in that way? Well, it, we felt it was time, you know, with things, with pot getting legal at that, at that time. And uh, the way things were going, we, I'd always wanted to go to the cannabis cup, you know, never thought I'd be invited to be, you know, a VIP there. So we were stoked and it was fun. We had a great time. It was really great. Plus it, it's what uh, kind of was the uh, catalyst to make us decide to, to go with the movie because the guy that made the movie wearing sunshine had been bugging us for a couple of years and we just kind of shined him on. Yeah. Mike, Mike Carroll and myself, we kind of just, eh. you know, because he was in it going around and interviewing everybody he could. And he would take that movie poster and interviewed a lot of those people who, you know, so we just didn't want any part of it. But when we got over there, we got me and Mike were talking, and he says, "Oh, this guy William Kirkley keeps bugging us about making this movie, and he seems like a really good guy." And I says, "Yeah, he seems like a nice guy." I said, "I'd talk to him." Michael says, "Well, I've had him over for dinner and stuff, you know." And so we thought maybe maybe we should go ahead and do it. He was supposed to come to the to the cannabis cup here to see us. Oh, okay. Yeah. He was supposed Filming. to. He didn't get footage. He of that. didn't. He, he didn't show. He didn't show. But anyway. So when we got back, we decided to talk to him, and then the movie. Then we started doing the movie. Yeah. Did you? Um. Did, I wanted to ask uh, a couple of things. Well, first of all, did you? I, obviously, you had a connection with Michael Kennedy to High Times. Um. Did you guys ever? Did the Brotherhood ever meet Tom Fursad at all during those days, or were they completely no. separate? No, we were all on the run during that whole time. Yeah. Man. Yeah. So we didn't. I didn't know him. I knew who he was. We didn't know him. The the other thing I wanted to ask you about the about in Amsterdam was I noticed and I've seen them online and I've seen them. They were one of them was there and I believe Michael Kennedy himself has one, which is the Brotherhood banner, the flags. Uh, there was one on stage at the event when you guys were inducted. I was just curious, uh, what you know, who made those flags and what what was the origin behind those? I think Carol made them, and they were. You remember when they were having the big love ins? Back in 60, 67 and 68, they had, well, it was before your time, but they were having love-ins. They were yeah. big, big festivals. They were like rock festivals, you know? 
and uh, Carol made those banners to have for those where we would sit for our group, you know, because we would all have our group at, at one area. And yeah. So those banners when Carol made those things, and she made several of them. I was going to say, really surprised do you know how many there are? Those. There's probably not that many of them. I think it was probably two or three, three of them maybe. But I don't know how that Hagar got his hands on that. But it was one of the original, and Carol was kind of blown away. She says, "Yeah, I made this. What the heck did he get? He get it? <laughs> it I, it's Michael Kennedy's. I'm pretty sure that's probably why. so. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so you were talking about you mentioned the movie. Um, I, I, I should mention that uh, before the movie, there was the book. Uh, it came out in 2010. Uh, former uh, OC Weekly writer Nick Scow released the book Orange Sunshine: The Brotherhood of Eternal Love and its quest to spread peace, love, and acid to the world. Which, as far as I know, is the most comprehensive account of the organization's rise and fall. Um, I relied heavily on the book when I'm doing my research and, and stuff. It's a it's a great book. Um, I definitely recommend everyone out there listening to definitely read. Read the book and and watch the movie. They're both they're both excellent. Um, Nick was covering you guys for for a lot of years, right? I mean, he was down there in the area where you guys were from. Yeah, yeah. Nick's a good good guy. I wouldn't have done the book if I'd have known some of the people he put in it. He didn't do enough research. He didn't he didn't really vet the people he talked to. Like William Kirkley, the guy that made the movie, he checked everybody out, checked their stories, and did a lot of follow up to make sure he wasn't being you know, yeah. fooled because uh, Nick got got taken in and he'll even tell you he got taken in by some people that you know there's 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 a, there's some misinformation in there yeah you know a lot of sensationalized stuff that you know the the sex parties and orgies and acid caves up in the mountains where they're making acid and uh all training camps to teach people to smoke i mean there's there's a lot of things that were said that are just just not true well, this Not is true. why this is why we feel, you know, World of Cannabis, why we feel it's so important to speak to the people who are actually there and involved and really get the real stories on the record. Uh, that's why I'm doing this podcast. That's why we're doing our column and our stories and stuff. It's 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 important to us to accurately tell the history of cannabis culture. Yeah. The bo- anyway, the book the book's worth reading because there's a lot of it's it's really really good, but there's mm-hmm. a lot of sensationalizing. But the movie's right on. Yeah, I haven't I haven't found any any mistruths or misleading stuff in the movie, but the movie was kind of just a precursor, kind of like a a preview of of more stuff to come. Really? Because William William wants to do a TV series. Oh wow! And so we've been working with people since the movie was out. We've, we've had a lot of interest in doing it. Amazon was going to do something. I actually signed a contract with Amazon, and that wow. went out. Yeah, they had the, all that big Hollywood shakeup. Uh, Harvey Weinstein stuff got in the way. Yeah. So, yeah. so a lot of the people that were involved either moved on to other companies or filling gaps of people that got fired. So the main guy at Amazon that was really into our project, he got hired elsewhere. Yeah. He went on to some, some, something bigger. But now we're, we, we've got some other interests going on right now. I talked to Michael the other day, Mike, <clears throat> Michael Randall, and uh, William Kirkley called me. So there's some new interest in maybe doing a movie or a TV series. Oh, that's fantastic! A, a dramatic, a dramatic thing, not not a documentary. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. I know, I know that you guys had a replica of one of the original smuggling surfboards made for that movie for Orange Sunshine. Uh, but I know because I saw the replica at the Weed Maps Museum in Los Angeles. They had uh, procured it from from whoever, from you guys to use in the exhibit. Um, I wanted to ask you, who owns that, and is there any chance we could get that for our museum? Well, William Kirkley owns it. 
And he's the guy that made the Orange Sunshine movie. Right. He owns, he owns that. So okay. he would be he would be the one. And I just don't know. He probably wants to hang on to it. I'm sure. Well, maybe uh, we he, could work he out where he could loan it, loan he it to us, right? Loan yeah. It to, yeah, he might loan for it for the you, exhibit. Gosh. Yeah. Yeah, he might. He, he, I'm sure he would loan it to you for that. Yeah, I'm sure he probably wants to keep it for his own self. Sure, sure. Well, we, yeah, but I mean, honestly, at the moment, things are kind of up in the air with us for the museum, as because of the COVID situation. So oh, we were, you know, we, yeah, of course, of course. So we we were in the process of scouting out locations. You know, uh, we were considering an uh, L.A. or San Francisco or even Amsterdam for the location of the museum, and we're not we're not really sure what's going to happen. But we do know it's probably going to be on hold for almost a, at least another year, I would guess because without mm-hmm. tourism there's no way to you know the museum's no, not going to be able no, to make any money yeah. so um you can't do it so we're going to kind of wrap things up here we, I've, I've kept you long enough uh any final thoughts or reflections before we go or any other projects or or things you'd like to plug well my thoughts are in the crazy times we're in today i'm just i'm hoping psychedelics comes back you know with a roar you know because I really don't see any hope for for people without without psychedelics. And people might think, "Well, that's pretty crazy." But you know, people that have taken them understand what they can do to you and how they can help you. So uh, I'm just uh, rooting for the youngsters. Yeah. Well, I know they you just know? legalized them in Ann Arbor, and I think in Santa Cruz as well. There's a few cities that are starting to decriminalize uh, at least mushrooms, if not other psychedelics. Yeah. So o- o- Oakland did. Oakland, right? Oakland. Oakland did as well. Yeah, and yeah, and uh, I think uh, didn't Denver. I think they did in Denver. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. So that's hopeful. Hopeful signs. Mushrooms and MDMA and these different things because they're really great tools, man. If they're used properly, it's just like anything. You can misuse anything, but you know, psychedelics. If they're used properly, they're they're really a great thing for mankind. They really help. Yeah, I I know. Back in the '60s, it changed. It changed. It made big changes. You know. 60s was a period of change and we're up against it again right now yeah history repeats itself yeah but it's just even that much heavier duty right now this is crazy this is crazy yeah who would have thought we would see our democracy itself in danger oh it is too i'm I'm really worried man yeah well we we shall see we shall see but uh all I can say is, Travis, I, I've been wanting to do this interview with you for, for years. I'm so glad we finally made it happen. Um, I have such enormous respect for you and what you and your brothers tried to accomplish, what you did accomplish, and what you've been through. Uh, you're a true counterculture legend. Uh, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It has been an honor and a pleasure, and I wish you many more years of health and happiness. Well, thank you, sir. And I really like you guys. You guys are doing a great job. and Keep it on. You know, you're, <laughs> you're carrying on the torch. We're trying, man. We're trying. Thank you again. Uh, please be well, and uh, it's been great talking to you. Thanks. All right, Bobby. Take, Love you, brother. Take care. Talk Love to you too, soon. man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that's going to do it for this extended, double-sized episode of Canthropology. I know it's a long episode, so I appreciate you sticking it out with us till the end. For more information on the World of Cannabis Museum project or to read our blog, please visit us at worldofcannabis.museum. If there's a guest or topic you'd like to hear us cover, or you have an item you think is worthy of inclusion in our museum, you can hit us up on social media or shoot us an email at canthropology at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this show, we invite you to go ahead and click that subscribe button, leave us a review, share it with your friends, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. A quick shout out to our great media partners, Cannabis Radio, Hayes Radio, and Leaf Magazine. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, this is Bobby Black, and I am history.
The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.